0: Transplaner RPG is proudly sponsored by at Dimitri Opines on Twitter. That is at D-M-I-T-R-Y-O-P-I-N-E-S. And Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy believing in the power of D&D and Transplaner's potential to grow, tell great stories, and lift up our community. Explain Trade trains negotiators for governments, big companies, NGOs, and offers e-learning courses for individuals looking to get a better deal from their boss. Level up your charisma score and check out hey there thank you for tuning in to trans a rpg we are an all transgender people of color led 100 homebrew dungeons and dragons fifth edition live streamed actual play campaign set in an original non-colonial anti-orientalist world i am your game master connie my pronouns are they he and she and my cast is as follows C. Thomas plays Oka Hien, an blood bloodhunter. Max Guo plays Dewey Quirk, an Aarakocra artificer. Erika Fladland plays V. Noxherzo, an elf sorcerer. Valiant Dorian plays Voska, a yuanti bard. Hamna Shahid plays Jaron Cotter, a dragonborn rogue. Dare Hickman plays Gentle, a triton monk. Quinn B. Rodriguez plays Sitlali, a changeling cleric. And Austin Knight plays Abiku Ishtar, a reborn goliath ranger. So, with that out of the way, here are the content warnings for this episode. Content warnings for this episode include apocalypse, climate disaster, war, grief, death of loved ones, complex and complicated relationships, romance, flirting, nightmares, disreality, and fantasy violence. Arc 8, Episode 3. Sad, Slow Songs of Parting. From Eulogy for a Dying World by Connie Chong. That's right. So everybody, please make your fate rolls now. Gay D20, no modifiers. Uh, So while my lovely players are figuring out their fate, as always, please let me bring your attention to the Doom and Fortune tracker right here on the overlay. Should be right over to the right of the screen over here. Once per session, our PCs will be making a war effort roll to push the tracker back and forth until Doom strikes and something terrible happens, or fortune smiles on the world so based on the reactions already i think doom might be striking soon but actually the trackers have nothing to do with the fate rolls or do they these two are completely separate mechanics uh, and we'll see what happens with them as the arc gone uh so let's start on in same order of introductions i want to get your fate rolls austin slash abiku what'd you get
1: uh a very very handsome 17
0: that is very handsome indeed 17 from abiku let's go to Voska slash val
2: a very very hot, sexy, snady nineteen.
0: Ooh, a hot, sexy, snady nineteen reporting in. Let's go to Gentle.
3: This one thing that connects Nibusa is the fact we both got fucking nineteen.
0: Hey! Nibusa squad coming in hot. Or should I say cold? Let's go to
4: Vasanti. I'm bringing things back down a little bit to a calm eleven.
0: Calm eleven. Okay, that's respectable. That's average. That's literally average. Uh, let's go to Dewey.
4: You can
5: skip me, right? Um, I rolled a nat 1.
0: <gasps> Bad Dad Dewey bringing it home with a nat 1. Uh, <laughs> Let's go up to Geron. God Jar LLC sticks together. I got a 3. Oh, God Jar LLC bringing down the market value of Paragon's limited liability company as well. And finally, let's go to Oka. A gentleman 16. Okay. A gentleman 16. Noted. And now, onto the title and verse of this particular episode. As a reminder, the titles of all of our Transplaner episodes are taken from lines of poetry and works of art by marginalized creators. This particular episode's title is called Sad Slow Songs of Parting from Eulogy for a Dying World by Connie Chong. And the full verse reads as follows. The forest is shivering, The fragrance of the forest is shivering against the broad black leaves of the hapu fern. The palapale with its black, narrow ferns, the trembling ferns and timid flowers. Above, above, the birds in the sky fall down. Below, below, the fish of the ocean sing songs about the end of all things. The woman is there, the fiery eyes, the stormy locks, the columns of smoke rising, rising. The top of the mountain rises. She perches on the peak. Her foot is in the dying ocean, in the reef of dying fish. The fish of the ocean are singing, singing, their sad, slow songs of parting. The birds fall down, down, their colorful feathers kiss the current. The fish rise, rise, their trembling scales turn to mist. Above, above, the woman perches on the peak. The sky is falling, the ocean is rising, the mountain is turning to mist. She opens her strong, broad arms, and storms and storms, until the long dark closes in. 10,000 miles of salt, 10,000 miles of desiccated soil, of withering sand, of coral structures, porous and leached, white as bone, ragged as beggar's breath. The seabed is exposed, naked. A white, washed expanse of knuckle-bone, shrub, root, hazard, filth, spine. There are no flopping bodies of fish, no beached whales, no thrashing sharks or gasping eels. No storm-tossed leviathans, no flattened blooms of jellyfish, no lurching dwellers of the hidden deep, just void. Void in its immaculate completion, its flat and dry and cracked scripture. No souls linger here. This is not death's domain. The millions, billions, trillions of fish in the Hema and Sigirni Sea have been consecrated to the empty. And now, These former oceans become unto graveyards to ships. Hulking Fuchuan naval vessels on Tulong's southern border, double-hulled Uhanian voyagers, single-masted sailboats from Jukai, canoes and skiffs from the court, frigates and galleons off the shore of the Dragonfang coast. These corpses and these corpses alone litter the evaporated basin of Andake's former oceans, smashed against the dried-up ocean floor like discarded children's toys. A person, blue-skinned, twitching, staggers across the southern salt flats. Behind them, the looming mass of Nawa Mountain its sides dappled by emerald jungle. They stagger forward, their sea green and black hair falling into piercing blue eyes, upper arms tattooed with oceanic imagery. Empty shadows lick off his shoulders in unstable miasmas of void, and a URL tag dangles from their left earlobe. He mindlessly stumbles past a crashed ship and vanishes into the salt. And on the prow of this ship, we see Captain Lahahana, an old tortle woman leaning fearfully against Manaya Wairua. The paragon of Mahu dutifully pulls injured sails from the wreckage, her face a careful mask of calmness. And yet, underneath it, in the pull of her brow and the twitch of her bottom lip, we see fear. Rage. And coiling beneath it all the strongest, most uncontrollable, overwhelming emotion of all. Grief. But before Mania can scream, before she can cry, before she can do anything but stop to help the people around her, down comes the dust. Where the godspine used to be, we now find nothing. Just flattened earth. Pebbles. Bald expanses of nutrient-starved dirt. Weeds. Stones. Lifeless grass. The same shade as the final grasses of Tonga. The northern border of Tulong now tumbles headfirst into a hundred-mile-wide strip of Godspine detritus before colliding with the crimson-dappled sand of the Tenushlek. To the west. The Torovar desert also hurtles toward a dead tract of land where the find used to be, and wind now howls over this felled gulch, blasting past the hollow memory of where mountains once stood. The stranger's fist is a black sun in the sky. One by one, its fingers uncurl and the remnants of the god spine filter down onto Andake in a flurry of parched white and red particles. At first, the Alliance thinks it's snow, then ash, or perhaps even bone dust, before realizing what it really is just dust. For three days and three nights, the blood-red sky reigns, even redder dust. The air is throttled with it. The sunless light blotted out, stifled darkness muffles, the horizon illuminated only by the Alliance's stalwart mages. This dust contains no soulwork. It's not the remnants of life in the godspine pulverized and scattered. It's not the ghosts of beulets, lions, panthers, manticores, quee, harpies, scorpions, or even the people who call its peaks home. This dust is one thing and one thing only, the lucent echo of destruction. And for three days and three nights, The dust falls, coating the ground in a thick blanket of white and vermilion powder, emanating a distinct lack. The empty has taken the sea, and it has taken the mountain, too. Gentle, after you sense Oblivion's presence, you are shunted from the Dream Shield. When you return to Camp Vanguard with Wu Ming in tow, The Alliance is shocked to hear your findings. And for the rest of the Second Stranger War, Paragons and Keepers are made to sleep in shifts under the watchful eye of a dream prophet. The camp thrums with fear, desperation. Morale initiatives are undertaken and fully attended by soldiers, workers, civilians alike. The lines in the med wards grow long. One day, we see Oka, fully crimson, drenched in blood, riding out of camp on Citada's back. We see Mercy charging forth, grabbing the vein, stopping Oka, shouting at them for them to come down. But Oka does not relent. They pull their elk free of Mercy's grasp and thunder out of camp, flinging themselves back into the fray, drenched in blood. Another night, we see Vasanti talking to Trenchfoot, the two of them huddled around a bonfire alongside other underground contacts. And the day after that, we see Abiku and Srinyi gliding through the air on sun's back, white and crimson dust tangling through their hair, their eyes scanning the parched ocean bed of the northern salt flats for signs of trouble. And in an evening, we see Geron and Dewey in the blacksmith square working tirelessly on these new god jars, the clanging of metal on metal ringing out well into the night. And off to the side, we see Bud, sitting calmly as Garu takes his measurements for armor. And even later into the evening, we find Sitlali and Vasca in one corner of Camp Vanguard, faces drawn and illuminated by licking tongues of bonfire flame, talking in low, hushed tones. And the next morning, we find Gentle and Wu Ming in the mess hall, talking over bowls of congee we pull in onto the scene in particular to find Wu Ming nervously wrapping her fingers along the side of her cup. White dust falls uninterrupted. A few flecks drifting into your shared breakfast. Uh, gentle. Good luck on your mission to Tabithati. Give the mountains my sorrow. Yeah.
3: I can do that, and uh, I'll need luck, because I am dealing with Sybil.
0: Luck. Luck. Sybil, the cruel. Cruel Sybil. Sybil, the cruel. Cruel Sybil. Yes, you will need luck, but I think you and Sitlali are the best people, people, people for the job. You are going to do great. Thank you. Uh, And on that, I think, we cut to Dabathati. Dabathati or rather, what used to be Dabathati. Gentle and Sitlali. the reports don't do justice to the aftermath of what we now call the evaporation. Standing vigil in the midst of a blasted field wrapped in a hill of black glass is the capital of the Republic of Talmud. From your vantage point on the other side of this structure, deep, deep within the Torovar Desert, it looks like a massive black, well, chrysalis. Its boundaries are foggy, translucent. You think you see the mercurial shimmer of waterfalls beyond it, the bustling of bodies on streets, the jagged stalactites brimming on the ceiling. The chassis is, of course... Siraksha's gift. And Sitlali, you recognize this material intimately. After all, old mama lightning had encased you in it in order to protect you from the chrysalis. And on the other side of this crystalline wall is where the two of you will find her. You know this to be true. So in the desert, looking at Dabathati, swaddled in a blanket of black glass, what do the two of you do?
6: I think Sitlali is probably like petting Bud by the, like at the scruff where he likes it, because they have not seen each other in a very long time. Um, And they're just kind of like surveying the scene and look to gentle. We can, we can do this. We're up for this, right? Of course. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have to flirt with Sybil to get what we want, right?
3: I asked you to come here for a reason, uh, and also you're way better at talking to Sybil than me. You know I don't necessarily care for them.
6: I they we got Bud back. That's that's the, the most important thing. Is we got we got Bud back. Here's
3: the, I, I like whisper in Raven speech. Um, the amount of like parenting work I've had to do. Uh, to help Bun unlearn some toxic uh, behavior patterns. It's been outstanding. That's, it's been a lot.
6: Whispered back in Raven speech, when did you learn this?
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can kind of... Um, I got... Hmm. I learned a little bit from Root, and then... Uh, I've spent some time sort of looking it up on my own.
6: Root, sweet breeze.
3: Yeah, you know, Root helps, uh, like, give Bud the ability to talk. So, uh, I hung out, uh, with him, uh, a a little bit ago
0: Bud's ears perk up, have been perked up this entire conversation, even in raven speech, uh, and they just sort of say in perfect raven speech, Root, sweet breeze. My awakener! My creator! Of course, imbued me with the ability to understand common and his native tongue.
3: Of course he knows Raven's speech.
0: Why did you not think that he would know Raven's speech?
3: It never came up.
0: I, for one, I'm… I'm excited to see Sybil again. I miss them. And Bud looks down and looks wistfully off into the glass.
3: I, I think, uh, scratch, like, right between Bud's ears. I'm like, I know, that's, that's why I brought you two. Despite Sybil and I not getting along, you still deserve to see them.
0: thanks gentle. Uh, I know we haven't always seen eye to eye, but I, I, I trust you and I love you. And I, I don't think I ever stopped trusting or loving you, really. I was just mad that you took me from a place with a lot of good food, and I was upset because I thought that you'd abandoned me. But after everything in the Iron Citadel and the Chasm, I I can tell you really care about me. And you, and you really care about the world, too. And, and so does Sybil. Sybil does really care about the world. And look! Uh, here they come! And... Uh, as Bud sort of points it, like in a specific direction of the crystal, like on the other side of the glass, the two of you see approaching the boundary of this huge black wall, a fire genasi tiefling. They, of course, have deep red skin that, like, turns black at their forearms, their hands, their fingertips. Uh, Their horns are pure obsidian, and they're cracked, too. And in these magmatic cracks, steam vents and glows this kind of devilish red. Their eyes, as always, are these, like, pure gold, right? Uh, And they're currently wearing uh, their signature leather armor with a sash tied around their waist, and they kind of uh, actually—they like kind of saunter up to the glass, uh, and you can see them swimming into fuller detail, uh, almost like they're on the other side of like a fogged mirror. And only when they get closer can you really make out their figure. Like you can't see anything else that's specific about Dabathati beyond them. And um, they approach the glass, and they seem to like lean on it and survey the two of you. Uh, but there's something underneath. I think they're usually confident, very like suave and snake-like, almost demeanor that doesn't feel quite typically Sybil-like. There's something. There's something else brimming, bristling underneath it, almost thorny or prickly or uneven. Uh, so Sybil actually leans on the glass and taps on it twice, and a crack. <laughs> Uh, shoots downward from where they tapped it, uh, almost like a lightning bolt uh, serrating through the wall. And it opens, it cracks open on either side, like an aperture. Uh, And the two of you see them fully now. This glass is at least like 10 feet thick. So it almost seems to form like a jagged passageway that the two of you can squeeze through to get to Dabathati if you want. And Sybil on the other side has their arms kind of crossed lazily over their chest and is eyeing the two of you. And Bud is like, you know, at attention, looks very excited uh, and enthusiastic to see Sybil. And Sybil just goes, well, 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 if it isn't Sitlali, Thornheart, yet again. Welcome back to our home, though under such dire circumstances. And yet, even as their hands are crossed over their chest, you see their fingers are drumming almost like anxiously on one arm. What did the two of you do? Sybil, it's always a pleasure. And I
6: think they like put a hand on Gential's shoulder and squeeze and then just kind of take the lead Um, and as they start to enter the the passageway I think she puts a hand out and touches the glass and like strokes it a little and says hello again old friend saved a lot of people and then
0: keeps going yeah what about you gentle
3: there's I think a very quiet sigh from Gentle as all of this happens. Um, hi, Sybil. Um, bud and I are also here.
0: Hello, Gentle, and hello, Bud. Uh, and Bud, at that, like, it, like very excitedly, like, gets up and like their tail starts wagging, 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 and they like trot after Sybil immediately. It's good to see you alive and well. And you too, Gentle. Same. How has Gentle been treating you, bud? Looks like you've been living the high life. It's It's been good. I, I actually have been having a really great time with Gentle, though I have missed you, but I don't want the two of you to have tension anymore because if this whole co-parenting thing is going to work out, then I think the two of you should bury the hatchet, so to speak. My, 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 my. Haven't you matured, Sit Molly. And I think at this point you've reached the end of the passageway, right? And Sybil reaches forward and does like a, a kiss on either side of your cheek. Siddhali will reciprocate that. As you do, that, I mean, because your passive perception is like incredibly high. That like low brimming emotion uh, bu- bubbling underneath Sybil's surface, you're really starting to pick up on it ambiently. And if you'd like, you can make an insight check. Always.
6: Have you ever known me to not make an insight check? 24.
0: Noted. Uh, with a 24, lolly.. You, you get the sensation that this is... So usually what you see from sybil the confidence, the kind of like fluidness, the slipperiness almost, is genuine. Like they're sort of just sort of like suave all the way down. But this seems almost like a veneer. Like, they're putting up their own black glass to shield something deeper within. And as they sort of pull away from those, like, cheek kisses and look at you, you see in the depths of their golden eyes... Anxiety? No, it's not quite anxiety. It's something softer than that. Something you've never seen on Sybil's face before. It hangs like an unfamiliar costume. I think Sitlali reaches out and...
6: Kind of, like, hesitantly but tenderly brushes Sybil's cheek with their thumb and just says, there's something troubling you, dear one.
0: And you see their mouth, those soft, soft lips, quiver almost like they're on the the brink of saying something to you, but they sort of tighten it and sort of squeeze their jaw. Let's talk somewhere a little bit more private, shall we? Welcome to... Dabathati 2.0. And they turn and gesture and reveal the city to the two of you, and it's... Dabathati. But... broken. You see the hard, vicious, violent edges of the city, where it seems like this crystal dug into the city and just sort of gouged it out as a way to protect it from the evaporation of the rest of the god spine uh you even see parts of like where sewage pipes have been cut in half and continue to just sort of like spit water out like one end of like a half pipe now uh, from where the wall meets uh concrete and steel piping uh you also see that like Some buildings have been completely bisected uh, and like others are crumbled. There's like massive chunks of debris littering the street. Uh, Both the night watch and the day watch are out in like full numbers trying to help people like erect, I think like triage tents uh, as well as like emergency housing. And it almost seems like Dabathati has like took like two steps forward uh, during the cataclysm after the initial events and have now taken five steps backward because this almost feels like you've been plunged back into Dabathati right at the maw of the first cataclysm itself. Uh, And you see all these people who have like old wounds from the initial cataclysm with like fresh broken arms and whatnot and like this definitely seems like a city broken, risen and then broken again. Like that's sort of the aura that hangs over this capital. And I think Sybil leads the two of you to to a shop that is very much a front uh, for the entrance into one of the Aurochs Guild's many underground headquarters. Uh, it's this sort of like little fruit stand that's been set up. And like a back room, you're able to like go down into like through like a manhole cover and like go down some steps. Uh, and you navigate through these twisting, turning dark uh, tunnels until Sybil leads the two of you to a rather familiar looking, like a like playpen for lack of a better term, right? But here, like it's been completely cleared out. It is empty. Uh, you see the remnants of luxury and hedonism Right? Like, there's still a little bit of, like, incense and smoke hanging toward the ceiling. You see these, like, lush animal print of rugs all over the place. These, like, things to drink, things to smoke, things to eat just scattered everywhere. But there are no servants here. There aren't even any, like, exotic pets that Sybil is known for. Uh, There are some, like, empty cages and empty chains and shackles that seem to have been broken or uh, released willingly. But it's just you and it's just Sybil. And they lead you in almost kind of soberly over to this like low table around which there are several cushions arranged and they sort of kneel down onto it. And it's just like the four of you here in this space. (sighs) Dabathati is um, unwell. When the evaporation occurred, old mama lightning... Captain Dovrenye Lizzo, she did everything she could to save our home. And it, um, took something from her. More than something, it, it took the... The aurochs is dead. She emerged from her cavern, from behind the whispering waterfall when old Mama Lightning was... Failing. She spent every last iota of her magic to keep this place alive. Her body now rests in that cave. And Captain litso she's... She's dying. The combined power of the aurochs... And the paragon of Utabathi was enough to save Dabathati, but it took so much from them. And I, we, I, I don't know what to do. And in that moment, Sybil knelt there on that cushion, looking at you, Sitlali, almost plaintively. You see, you know, the, the leader of a massive crime ring, but you also see a person whose foundational confidence and worldview has been completely shaken. It's cracked them open into something uncertain and vulnerable and soft that they've never allowed themselves to feel.
6: Silali reaches out and puts, like, their hand on top of Sibyl's. I don't know if you and the aurochs were personally close, but my condolences. Either way. We... And I think they kind of look to gentle. We came to appeal for your aid, but it seems that first you might need a bit of ours, which we are happy to give, right, gentle?
3: In the wake of hearing everything, gentle has softened. Simple's still a person, uh, and gentle is more than ready to help despite personal feelings.
0: You help me, even after everything I've done to your Bud, everything I've, I've. And Sybil sort of looks off to the side to see Bud, who has, I think, trotted over next to them and has sat down and is looking up at Sybil with those like bright black eyes and that big wet black nose. (laughs) And Sybil reaches out a blood red hand tentatively And then Bud closes the gap and like nuzzles the top of his head into the hand and Sybil like tentatively pets Bud on top of Bud's head. And like a look of softness bleeds across Sybil's face in that moment you see like just a person who's enjoying petting a dog, right? Not a person who's like trying to conquer this dog and make them into a killer or like use this dire wolf as their next big, like, you know, showpiece. But just a person who feels unsure, being comforted by the presence of an animal. And Sybil pets this dog, pets Bud. And we see another expression crack across their face. It's an expression of relief. Like they're genuinely relieved and happy to see Bud safe. You have taken care of them, haven't you, gentle? I don't know, Sitlali, I don't know if I'm- if there's anything worthwhile here. And they lift up that, like, black, tinged hand and place it over their chest. To help.
1: I
3: think- I think at everything, gentle. Sort of, once again, still soft, softer expression. Smiles, a little- I think hopefully. Despite everything simple, you're still a person, and there's still people here, and they need help, and personal feelings don't matter in the way of that. You, you get that.
0: Huh. I suppose all it really takes is the world literally ending for me to reevaluate my position here. If the two of you can get someone like me to try to change, to accept your help, then maybe just. Maybe you can get her to change, too. Old Mama Lightning, she is as unwell as Dabathati. After the death of her mother, she she's barely holding on.
3: We'll do what we can. Um, and, I mean, not for anything. I do have a tendency of helping Dabathati with a couple of words, so...
0: The speaker of Dabathati, that's what they're calling you now. I hope you know that, gentle. The masked hero. (laughs) I thought it was a load of bullshit, but now looking at you, perhaps I was wrong. Sitali, I have regrets. I have so many regrets. About my station, my path in life, about... And they reach their hand away from Bud's head and almost like hold it across the table toward you. Us. I don't want this journey of hours of, of life to, to end with all these heavy black stones in my heart, weighing it down. I greeted you at the black gates of Dabathati because I, I want... Old Mama Lightning to come through this on the other end. We... we need her. I don't know who I am. I don't know what the Aurochs Guild is without... her. And I see now, plain as Galtanger's light, she needs the two of you. Sybil, do you remember... when we met? Temerity
6: (laughs) Bright? Extraordinaire?
0: How could I forget?
6: Do you see how much has changed in me since then?
0: Sybil cocks their head to the side, and for the first time in a really long time, Sid Lolly, perhaps even ever, they look at you. Like they really look at you. Not just at your hair, your curves, your smile, but at you. And you get the sense that they're really trying to see you. I'm scared, Sibali. I'm scared to recognize you because I... It feels so far away from anything I could ever become. And
6: they reach out and take Sybil's hand. Just because it took you until the end of the world to realize that you needed to change, doesn't mean it's too late.
0: <sighs> well... Consider me speechless. Lolly's
6: gonna lean in for a kiss if Sybil will allow it.
0: (laughs) Sybil blinks, and you see, like, their eyes are wet, you know, and and shining, but the tears haven't spilled yet, and they almost seem unsure. Like, a a former Sybil would've definitely closed the gap and just kissed you, right? But this Sybil is like, The kiss doesn't seem to be coming from lust. It's not coming just from attraction or just from, like, a whirlwind romance. It's coming from a place that's a lot deeper and more genuine than anything they've ever touched before. And they're fearful of that. But then Bud nudges their hip forward and they sort of fall into the kiss. And they reach out their hand and, like... Cup sort of like the the back of your waist and like hold it there firmly and then they they let go anyway thank you for being here gentle Uh, it is a pleasure to have you here as always and truly I I do appreciate your presence here if anyone can bring hope back into Captain Lito's heart it's you gentle hero of Dabathati who I can
3: And honestly, when we're through with all of this, we'll have to have a talk anyway, especially for Bud's sake.
0: Uh, Yes, for Bud. And she sort of like scratches that spot on Bud's head where you scratch him, whenever he's feeling like any type of way, like Sybil also intuitively knows where to to get him good. And like Bud sort of like nuzzles into Sybil's touch. Uh, And on that, if the two of you are ready, Perhaps it's time to talk to the paragon of Yudabathi herself. The cavern is how the two of you remember it. The last time you were in Dabathati, when you encountered the aurochs. A massive, huge vestibule, an arching chamber, a gushing, pounding waterfall in the back uh, that flows into a natural stream that trickles out of sight. But here, sort of at the um, edge of this shoreline, there's something that was certainly not there before. A massive form, spherical, round, but over it is draped a white sheet. And you get the sense that this is, of course, the body of the orox herself. And kneeling in front of it, you see almost like a little grain of rice, a little dot from your perspective at the back of this chamber. Old Mama Lightning, she's just kneeling there. You see semblances of an altar, votive, candles, offerings of gems and fruits, dried herbs and trinkets, silver, bronze, raw ores and minerals. And in the middle of it all, the aurochs' daughter, small, hunched over, wrinkled, staring at the body of her mother. Just like Sibyl's den, this space is empty. There's no one in here. Not even like the usual 20, 30, 40 guards that she would have in this space at a given time. It's just completely empty. Sibyl had led you past a retinue of guards toward this corridor and now opens into a chamber, but it's just the two of you, Bud and Sibyl, at the mouth of this waterfall den. And Sibyl nods at the two of you and sort of leans back and stays in the shadows. And, like, across the way, across these craggy crenellations, past these little nooks built into the walls, filled with all sorts of artifacts and statues and gems and weapons and magical items, Old Mama Lightning knelt on the floor, her back to the two of you, keeps her chin lowered, but her voice echoes across the chamber as soon as she senses you. Sybil, Sybil, Sybil. Didn't I say no guests? What do the two of you want? I've left the Alliance. Hasn't Tabathati given your cause enough?
3: I think, first of all, I just want to offer my condolences and if there's anything I can provide in terms of food just to help. Um, and second, we just want to talk.
0: talk talk a talk isn't going to bring her back a talk isn't going to bring the mountains back it's not going to refill the salt flats with Hema and Sigirni so talk speaker of Dabathati and see what wounds your words can mend
3: the first thing gentle does um, is tries to feel uh, for a thread between old Mama Lightning and Dabathati almost as a as a concept as as like a place as a people. It uh, mm. feels that that thread is still strong.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's have this be your war effort roll. So I'll let you make either an Arcana check, an Insight check, or a Religion check.
3: Okay. I have a follow-up question. Would my uh, Threat of Possibility thing uh, be able to be used here to make that a bit stronger?
0: You know what? Yes. Yes, it would. Why don't you just read out what Threat of Possibility does, and we'll resolve okay. after that.
3: Um, Gentle's Keeper power is called Bread's Possibility. Once per long rest, Gentle can describe a course of action they or someone else might take. And it views God Godshard will reveal clear visions about the outcome of that action. When Gentle is done pulling the thread, they gain a plus 10 to the next skill check they make to pursue that course of action.
0: So let's say the, the check you make gets a plus 10. <laughs>
3: Beautiful. That's so exactly let's interpret this. it that way. Yeah. Okay. So that's 12 plus a 21. Um, makes that a 33.
0: <laughs> Noted. Okay. Uh, <laughs> gentle. <laughs> Noted. Uh, gentle, as you Sort of move forward and focus on Old Mama Lightning. Everything else sort of falls away, sort of turns grayscale, sort of blurs at the edges, and it's just this woman hunched in front of the body of her mother. And then you see it a thread, like a spindle of red lightning, sort of jolts out of her back and connects her to the waterfall. And then another thread, a golden one connects her to the walls and then a black one comes out and shoots out like through the ceiling of this chamber and connects to the greater network of all those black crystalline walls around Dabathati now. And you get the sense that yeah, old Mama Lightning has massive stake in Dabathati as a place. This is her home. It's the place that she calls her own. It's the place she's sworn to protect govern in a lot of ways. She's intimately connected to it.
1: Uh,
3: Captain, um, I I don't necessarily know if this is the best thing to hear, but I know that your heart is still invested in Dabathati, and I know, ultimately, as bad as everything seems, losing everything would be so much worse and I want to know what I can do to help, what we can do to help, not just as an alliance, not just as uh, keepers or paragons, but as people who care about you and care about this place as well.
0: Help. Help. And Old Mama Lightning finally, turns sideways, uh, one of her eyes sort of swiveling in its socket to look at the two of you. And it's the eye that has three different colors flashing in it, Yudabathi's eye. In my entire life, speaker of Dabathati, I have done a great many things. I have killed, I've threatened, I've maimed, I've destroyed, I've built, I have helped, I've blackmailed, I've coerced, I've stolen, I've risen to the top of the underbelly of all of Andake. But I have never, ever relied on someone else except for my mother and she slowly looks back toward this like cloth draped corpse and now she's gone (sighs) one of the main reasons i've never relied on anyone else is because i didn't need anyone else's help i've always been the strongest I've always been the most powerful. The one who was able to protect, create, destroy, more than anyone else. There was only one person I considered stronger than myself. And now she's dead. And I am lost.
6: Captain. Divided, we are all smaller than the stranger. We are all nothing in the face of Oblivion. You helped me once in the nothing plane. And Adam is dead by my blade for the record. We are so small compared to Oblivion, which is why we need each other all of us, we're something, at least. Isn't that better than being in the nothing plane for eternity? Do you remember before you had Vinash, how incomplete that felt? And I think Sitlali's wings kind of flare with, like, that red lightning, with that memory of Vinash when they, uh, met. Um... Right now, your Vinash and the rest of the world are Suraksha and Thristi. So why don't you come back? And we stand together, and we live as one, or we die as one.
0: And the two of you see her laugh turn into a gnarling cough uh, into her hand. And you uh, both of you see like a bright spot of crimson in her hand as she pulls it close to her chest. (laughs) Well, you two young ones, maybe an old bitter killer like myself doesn't deserve redemption, but maybe I do deserve the chance at least one last time to ask. And she finally turns around fully and looks at the two of you, and you see that she was hiding something. There are these red-hot veins rippling up her neck uh, that have completely consumed one side of her face, uh, like the force of channeling the tearing her apart right? And you also see black and gold veins striking through as well. Like she's used as much of her Godshard's power as she could bear to save Dabathati and she's just hanging on. And she looks at the two of you and wobbles where she's kneeling and says, help me. And then she falls over.
3: I run over immediately.
0: Yeah.
6: Sitlali is going to, I think put her hands gently on the sides of old mama lightning's face and cast heal which da, 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 is an automatic 70 hp it also ends blindness deafness and any diseases um if there are any diseases happening around
0: consumption perhaps um <laughs> good to know uh Sidlali. This is gonna be your war effort roll. Uh, make me a spell casting check. So like you're making like an a, a, attack with a spell. Cool, cool, cool.
6: Um, 30.
0: Noted. Uh, so Sitlali, as your hands go over old mama lightning, you see her like cloth wrapped body. She's so small is sort of what you get. She's, she's old and she's small. And in a lot of ways she's quite frail and she, she needs your help. And I think as your hands go over her skin and you you channel this, like, healing magic, we see those veins begin to recede back underneath the collar of her cloth shirt, right? But it does leave almost like these carved channels behind, uh, like a dried up river, entangling themselves like roots in a riverbed with her wrinkles. Uh, and eventually, like, her eyelashes flutter and she takes in, like, a, a, a breath again, and when she opens her mismatched eyes, she's gazing up at you, Sitlali, as well as you, Gentle, and Bud, who's nearby. <gasps> mm. And then she, like, clasps the front of her shirt, and Sitlali, so you get the sense that this weakness isn't completely removed, but you've definitely stabilized her, and she's not in, like, immediate threat of dying anymore. <sighs> you know, a part of me, if you hadn't shown up, had resigned to just dying here next to her.
6: I know. But you're <sighs> something, remember? You're not nothing.
0: <laughs> Funny coming from you. I'm glad you've shaken off that name, said Dolly. Nothing never suited you. Glad to hear that fucker is dead, too. Tell me. Was it everything you ever hoped for? No. Huh. Uh, that wasn't that perfect. Uh, uh. And she like painfully pushes herself back to it, like a stand, but she's holding on to you to help her do it. And she like picks up her cane from where it had dropped, from where she was kneeling, and uses it that to stabilize herself as well. And I think Sitlali <sighs> is also using their
6: cane to stabilize her. So it's just you know I cast yeah. chain cane. Um, chain
0: cane. Somewhere off in the distance, cane goes hello. Uh, yeah, she she pulls but in her- French. <laughs> Bonjour. I don't know. Uh, she she <laughs> she pulls herself. Old Mama Lightning pulls herself like to like a fully upright sitting position and looks at the two of you evenly, nodding. Fine, fine. I'll help the Alliance again, but only as long as the two of you are still a part of it. Oh, right. Someone before this didn't get the memo that I'd fucked off from the Alliance, and they sent me this very silly invitation. And she reaches into her like cloth armor and pulls out what i can only describe as an extremely homosexual rsvp like an like a letter like it's embroidered it's like eggshell creamy parchment paper like it's like weighted. like it looks like like really nice right and she like actually just hands it over carelessly in the two of your direction it doesn't care which one of you takes it uh this person oh thank you gentle uh says he'd be honored to offer up his land for the Alliance to use as, and I quote, the fabulous site of your magnificent final showdown. I have no idea what he's referring to, or even how he knows there will be a final showdown, but here, make sure that gets to the Alliance. I can't carry this on my own. It's going to take me a few more days to get back to Camp Vanguard, but I will come when the call is sounded. And gentle, when you look down at the letter, you see that it is addressed from one Dalapathi Saeed.
3: Thank you once again for everything. And I promise, um, even after we save the world, I sort of have a project in the works and Dabathari will be one of the first places we hit.
0: (laughs) Ever hopeful, aren't you? Well, if... We do end up thwarting oblivion once and for all, you are more than welcome to start an organization here in Dabathati. Just know that all guild fees do pass through me.
3: Understandable. Mm -hmm.
0: And now, I would appreciate a little bit of privacy. I believe a certain insubordinate captain of mine might be able to put the two of you up for the rest of your stay here in Dabathati? Uh, yes, of course, Captain Leetso. Good. I'll spare you your head this time, Sybil. But don't keep pushing your luck when it comes to disobeying my direct orders. Of course, my captain. Sybil's very good at obeying when it suits them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you. (coughs) Okay, that's enough. I have final rights to give my mother, and if I'm not going to die here next to her, I suppose someone has to wash the body.
6: You don't have to do that
0: alone if you don't want to. Are you offering your services as a former priest of the Raven Queen? I don't know if former
6: is quite the word, but yes. Hmm.
0: Then join me.
3: I'll help however I can.
0: We do need a witness. And I think for the rest of that time, you like gently and very like ritualistically remove the sheet to see the limp form of this massive beholder, right, this aurochs. And together you and Old Mama Lightning wash and clean the body and give it its final rites while gentle and bud stand vigil. And I think as we fade down on this scene, we're gonna open up on a balcony of a like third or fourth story walk up, right? Right in like, Downtown Siraksha district. This is Sybil's like personal, like private above ground digs, right? That you uh, you've spent many a fun romp here. Is you know whatever you swing by Dhamathati, right? Uh, but here, I think we find you, Sitlali, and you, gentle, and Bud, just sort of lounging and sleeping, curled up nearby uh, on Sybil's private balcony. It overlooks what used to be a beautiful vista of like the market square, but now storefront windows are caved in, glass and debris littered. Every block of the street and just the distant sound of crying and occasionally sobbing and screaming and low explosions muffle the air. But up here, looking down over the city with Sybil somewhere inside, making some sort of dessert and the two of you together with Bud, it almost feels like maybe things will eventually be okay, everything's so uncertain and the sky beyond the black glass is still red and full of eyes but you have Sybil now and you have Old Mama Lightning. What do the two of you do on this balcony?
6: I think Lolly is leaned back against a pile of cushions very, like, you know, Sybil. Uh, they're very plush and uh, expensive Um, and she just kind of looks over at gentle how are you doing honestly
3: gentle takes an extended second to really check in with themselves um despite everything i'm doing okay Uh, stuff like this knowing that even with the sky being completely red and the world about to end Knowing that I'm able to go to different places and help people find a little bit more hope is, I think, everything I could ask to do. Um, And I appreciate you being here uh, for all of this, and I couldn't have done done this without you, so I'm I'm okay. How are you?
6: I mean, it's the end of the fucking world, Um, but somehow I'm doing a little better, which is weird, but good.
3: I think I settle a little closer. Even at the end of the world, even when things look as bleak as they have been, I think moments like these are really important. Little moments of beauty and peace and even a bit of a victory.
6: It was a bit of a victory today, huh?
3: Yeah. That could, I can't think of a way it could have went better. I'm proud of you. What? I remember how much of the mask you used to wear back when all of this happened uh, a year ago and you've grown so much.
6: Thank you. But, um, look look who's talking. Uh, The person who used to wear the literal mask. um, mixed speaker of Dabathati. It's
3: such a title.
6: (laughs) It is Um, such a title. It's your title. Uh,
3: It's... (laughs) It's weird to have that much recognition <laughs> um but i'm I'm also glad with how far I've come, and I wouldn't have been half as far as I got without knowing you and having you in my life and thank you I appreciate you
6: i i i um I, I appreciate you too gentle.
3: Mm-hmm. I've also been looking at your letters uh, a bit especially with everything happening. Um Moonbeam by the way, very cute.
6: I mean, is it cute considering we don't have a moon and I only know that what a moon is because a man from Ohio explained it to me before he uh threw me into the nothing plane. Um you I don't, don't know. It...
3: You you don't have to squash it. It's still I like it.
6: You do? of course
3: um, and I've been thinking about the conversation we had a while back and I I like you what? gentle sidles a little closer I, I like you a lot like
6: as co-workers or like as friends or like
3: gentle doesn't say anything but gives you a very knowing look
6: and I think Sadali is just getting progressively redder and like, like, gets, starts to get red and then like catches it and then like goes back to their normal skin tone and then like starts to get red again and then goes back to their normal skin tone. Uh.
3: Remember that question you asked me a while back?
6: I ask a lot of questions. Uh, gentle, you're going to have to be more specific. Um.
3: The one where you asked if you could kiss me.
6: I I do remember that question yes
3: um well I I have a I have a pretty solid answer oh yes
6: and they do um and I think against you know whatever uh amount of self control Sitlali possesses um the weave around them starts to vibrate intensely, um, and fireworks go off as like thaumaturgy fires without them casting it. Uh
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's really cute.
6: (laughs) I don't have control of it and I'm palleted of the weave, come here and
0: they kiss you again. And I think on that, uh, we close down on the scene on the balcony. Uh, and we are going to go to a different scene now. Fire Root Farm is a 50-acre cactus and vegetable farm owned by Dalapati Saeed, situated on the edge of a rocky cliffside that overlooks what used to be the Boundary Waters. But now... It is a vast sweeping expanse of parched earth stretching toward the muddy shores of the court to the far west. The Boundary Flats, as they're now known, are now a cousin to the rugged plateaus and arid soil of the Badlands. Here, nothing but prickly shrubs seem to grow, but Fireroot Farm is the exception. Cacti? Onions, carrots, leeks, garlic peas, and beets rake the horizon before you. Their verdant stalks are white and red with dust, bulbs hanging low under the weight of burgeoning apocalypse. In the near distance, a handsome farmhouse rises toward the crimson heaven. And across a fallow field, we see Dallapathi Said himself a pink tiefling with corkscrew horns. His jaw is smooth, he's shaved his goatee, and his denim apron is stained with dust. Alongside his husband, Kathor, a handsome, dark-skinned elf in a wheelchair, Dalapathi is busy building a massive structure. In fact, the air quivers with magic as these husbands pull pylons upright, nail wooden boards, lay down carpet, and otherwise appear to be assembling a stage. We're now going to push past Dalapathy and Kothor to find Vasanti, Voska, and Jaron. The three of you have arrived at Dalapathy's a day before the concert for the end of the world. We find the three of you nearby, surrounded by cacti, ferns, and carrots. Why don't you tell me what are the three of you up to?
7: I think Jaron walks up towards where maybe Vasca and Vasanti have been talking, like arms full of like weird little contraptions and just kind of goes up. Uh, Vasca, I think, uh, why exactly did we need two tons of fireworks again?
2: because after uh kane's opening in which uh, he frolics forward with the chained empty beasts there will be a sequenced release of fireworks including but not limited to from the east from the western corner all the way to the eastern
7: yeah, I, I don't, uh, about about those chained, uh, the empty beasts again, are we sure that that's such a great idea? I mean, I know that we think that we can control them, but I really, I don't want to um, risk that again.
2: I believe that they are subdued, but if you are incredibly concerned, I can have a chat with Cain to see that Perhaps we instead have them dealt with and parade them instead. Either way, it's the same effect.
7: And John kind of like shifts the the fireworks in their arms. I just think that we have to be careful. I mean, the empty beasts have been getting more and more and more powerful as we travel.
2: Either way, I'll be sharing the stage with Cain as well. And I think between the both of us, if there is a momentary, need for us to deal with all of the empty piece before anything goes wrong. I
4: believe the two of us could do so.
7: Okay, Vasanti here, hold, hold, hold these, please.
4: And Vasanti takes, I don't know why we need fireworks when I can just, you know, start shooting fireballs into the sky. That's just a safe. It's, they were Kane's insistence. Fine but we got the platforms right like we're gonna have for my idea we're gonna have like little platforms around the stage like up high to, you know
2: vaska looks at you with these with this bright smile and she says you can have any platform you like just make sure you get there before kate does
4: <laughs> trust me but don't don't worry about it and um, i think vasanti also like takes a moment to sort of look back at the actual farm set and sees the little cactus now a year older that she initially tripped on and almost face planted into and she just like smiles a little bit and she sort of like yeah goes off to like thinking about where she's going to be standing on that stage to do whatever she has planned to do during the concert
2: i think while vasanti is just getting ready for the uh positioning that uh she's about to uh position themselves on I think Voska is looking at a plan of the out, just the overlay of how the performance is going to go, the concert where everyone's meant to be standing, and she's practicing with parable just while she's looking at the plan, just almost like she is minutely practicing her movements that she's going to do upon her performance, but looking and adjusting all of the things, it's, it's incredibly detail-oriented. She's a little bit micromanaging a little bit on everyone's movements. I think there might have been a new addition to the movement by Kane, which she very, very calmly. She doesn't erase it necessarily, but she turns the arrow to a different direction, to like a curved direction. So it's curved a little bit <laughs> so that everything flows on a lot more smoother.
0: Bosca, as you're practicing uh, with Parable and swinging it boom, boom, boom through the air, doing your micromanagerial work, actually, I think you feel a presence emanating off of Vasanti. As you weave Parable through the air, right? Parable is empowered with your own latent soul magic. And you sense, as a soul magician, something brimming off of the edges of Vasanti's.
2: I think... While she feels that, like, the ping happens as she's swinging Parable like an incense sensor, and she stops. She goes, Vasanthi, come back here for a moment.
4: I swear I didn't do anything with the fireworks. They're perfectly, uh, they're fixed. They're fine.
2: (laughs) She looks at you for momentary disbelief, and she says, We'll deal with that matter in a moment. I, is the pinging still continuing now that Vasanthi is closer to me?
0: Oh yeah, you feel it. It's almost like heat coming off of a stove or a furnace. It's just sort of a latent energy just kind of vamping off of her shoulders.
2: May I take a look at you, Vasanti?
4: Uh, sure.
2: With my, allow me to explain, parables peeking up on a, on some latent soul magic and soul energy. I would like to observe what that means, if that is okay.
4: Sure, I don't really know anything about soul magic, so, um, I'll just... Okay, whatever you say.
2: I I assure you, it will not hurt. You might feel some light tingling and sensation. If you feel any discomfort at all, please let me know. And she begins, like, swinging parable like an incense sensor all around, like, walking around you. Vasanti before, as she swings, it like hoops off of her elbow onto her wrist and then into her hand, the actual arrow dart, as she pulls onto your soul magic and begins to weave and observe it.
0: Do I need to make a roll? <laughs> yeah, let's say this is your war effort roll, Vasca. So make me Arcana, Religion, or History. I'll let you choose.
2: Okay, so that is a natural 15 plus 14, so 29.
0: No, me. I Boston. hate it when you
2: say it like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> As you swing a circle with Parable around Vasanti, Vasanti, you get a. Uh, uncomfortable is an understatement, a sensation almost like if a limb falls asleep and that staticky fuzzy feeling just immediately sinks over your entire body from head to toe, like jolting through your gums, through your teeth, through your nerves, every single marrow, every single blood cell just starts to vibrate kind of discomfortingly. But it doesn't hurt exactly. It's just a very odd sensation. And Voska, you see like a humanoid kind of silhouette or a presence begin to drift up off the edges of Vasanti's soul and almost seem to envelop her. And you've seen this before as a spirit medium. It's when presences of other entities or beings cling or anchor themselves onto living mortals. This is some sort of soul or the ghost of a soul or the echo of a ghost of a soul holding on to Vasanti and something that strikes you is that it feels very familiar. It's not like Vasanti from a past life or from a future life or anything like that. But it does feel like related intimately by blood to Vasanti in some way.
2: So in my professional opinion, is this something necessarily to be concerned about? Or is there a way for me to like discern further maybe the nature of the relationship?
0: With your 29, as you focus on it more, the silhouette seems to harden and crystallize around Vasanti, and you see a form that is quite large actually looming over her. It makes you think for a split second of a biku how, like, big a biku is. This figure is maybe, like, eight, nine, maybe even ten feet tall, like a broad-shouldered woman with a kind of proud stature, the outline of hair that looks kind of similar to Vasanti's, and smells of titanic magic.
2: I think Vaska is, after, like, pulling the thread of your soul energy, Vasanti, she's, like, moving around. It's almost like when you are wrapping, like, a scarf around someone and she's just moving around you. And she says, I am noticing a titanic presence about you. I must admit that I'm new to this sort of influence. Abiku was my first example of this. But there is a presence clinging over the essence of your soul.
4: Are you aware of this, Vasanti? When I was in Jukai recently with a I tried to shift into draconic mage form. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with that magic, but apparently the Titans used to be able to transform into two different forms depending on which school of titanic magic they went on, and uh, when I tried, um, I saw someone who looked a lot like me, uh, and many others actually. Briefly. Just ever so briefly. I don't know much or anything at all about soul magic whatsoever, but um, I think based on what my father told me of an aunt I had, that what I saw in Jukai the other day could have been her. It looked like someone very similar to me. And maybe this is because I've been trying to stir up this titan magic in me, maybe I'm maybe i'm starting to connect with that ancestry now maybe it's something i'm like you said working coming into as opposed to whoever i was beforehand or maybe i've always had it and i just didn't realize it i am no expert on titanic magic myself
2: i only know within the realms and energies of soul magic
0: and Voska, with your 29, you can see this form starting to destabilize, even as you're swinging parable, and it's like, boop, boop, like it dissipates. Like, you can't hold it for super long. You were only able to conjure it and see it for maybe a couple of moments before it goes back into invisibility. But it's still there. It's still lingering around Vasanti, but your ability to draw it out, like an image from paint, is tenuous. Mm. You do know, however, you've made that initial connection though. And even as like the swinging of parables sort of slows down, you feel the heavy weight of that titanic ancestry still sifting in the air around you, commingling with the lambent white and crimson dust all around you. And you get the sense that if you just focused a little bit harder, if you attuned your energy, if you turned it into a spear and drilled down into Vasanti's soul, you might be able to open up a door for Vasanti to commune with this particular spirit.
2: Connie, how dare you?
0: Just dangling some bait there for How
2: dare you do this to me? Dangling some soul bait. (laughs) How dare you do this to me after what happened?
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think as this realization is starting to settle in and this ambient soul magic continues to wrap around this fallow field upon which the four of you are setting up fireworks, Vasca, your attention drifts sideways to another, let's say, spiritual anomaly in the group. Jeron. ever since you've patched up, all of you rather, have helped form that barrier over the hole in Jaron's chest. The entropic field within their soul has stopped metastasizing, but it hasn't gotten smaller. You've just sort of contained it. And now that you're kind of activated and your ears are open right now, so to speak for any sort of spiritual activity, you can feel like that roiling, crackling, vacuous, sparking noise of empty magic just going, 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 even underneath the surface of that barrier you've helped stitch together. And you get the sense that there's something else going on down there.
2: Mm-hmm. I think you see Voska like initially as she's swinging Parable you kind of see Parable swinging against the thread of Asante's magic and that's when she clocks that she can probe a little deeper and then Parable just stops stock still in her hand no longer dangling and her eye her glazed over like foggy white eye looks over at Joran as she hears this, almost like a dripping in her head, echoing. As she says, "Vasanti, I might have more to provide you, if it comes to your soul magics and energies, and ancestry. I think we could certainly work together. But then, and she as, as she keeps trying to like pursue that thought of like let's drill into." the ancestral soul magics it's like she keeps getting distracted with the crackling and roiling that's coming from Juran. and it's this loud sound and she just stops herself Juran, I would like to give you a soul exam
7: I think think Joran has just been kind of like standing here, like nodding very intently at the conversation, just like listening to it. A little bit worried for Vasanti because uh, hearing that she had tried to turn into a draconic mage, presumably did not succeed, uh, is kind of worrying for him. Um, But as soon as Vasa kind of like turns her attention to them, they like stop and they throw their brow. I I suppose if you want to,
2: It has been a moment since our collective intervention upon the empty and mother's blood consuming upon your life force. I have only just realized that I hadn't given you a checkup since. Would you allow me?
7: Sure. Uh, Is there something that I need to be worried about? I don't think that it's leaking or anything.
2: It is very loud. Please have a seat and uh i think very in stark contrast to how she was examining vasanti where she was it was more of a doctor's visit with vasanti where it was like please have a seat do you let me do this this is okay you feel a little pressure here you sit down and she immediately walks over and just says this you might feel some discomfort and like swings parable wrapping around her wrists and the arrowhead is now in her hand and pulls oh. because it's like so loud that she needs to know the answer right now
0: ah jaron for your war effort role i'll give you a choice you can make a con save uh you can you can make a charisma a performance check i guess to sort of ground yourself or an insight check on yourself.
7: They are all the same. Um, so I guess I will just, they're literally all the same modifier and then it's not great. So I guess I'll do a con save. Uh, please save me. It's
0: still only a 19. Okay, that's not bad. Uh, walk it off. Noted. Bosca, as you p- p- swing Parable in Geron's direction, sure enough, you feel it. And Joran, as Voska examines you, pain twitches in the depths of your soul, a pain that had been very much thankfully, fortunately, muted and muffled by your friend's intervention, but it's like peeling back a scab and prodding a lancet deep into the unhealed wound. That's kind of how it feels, even as Voska's digging around to examine it. But thankfully, this examination does yield very important information, Bosca. Everything else boom, sort of turns grayscale, and it's just sort of Jaron here in front of you, that black seething mass of void bubbling and frothing in the center of their chest, and you see it. Minuscule, almost microscopic tendrils of mother's blood is leeching into Geron's bloodstream as well as the soul magic that infuses their entire body and what makes them up as a person. In other words, even though Mother's Blessing has been contained, even in its current state, without very soon and very intense, probably divine intervention, Joran will turn into an empty beast.
2: I think, Joran, you feel a discomfort. And that discomfort quickly turns into sharp pain, like a healer prying a wound taut against skin and look and analyzing it deeply. You feel that Uh, pressure from her. And I think this is like, her tone is reminiscent of Arc 7 as she prods into another individual. And she says, just bear with me for a moment. And she peers closer. Just be quick about it, please. She peers a little closer, notices all of that, and then kind of like pulls away, but still kind of like as if she is highlighting like computer enhance onto it. So she is showing a thread of Joran's soul energy and the color of Joran's soul energy. She's pulling another thread and like maybe down the thread that is, like, the tiniest mark of Mother's Blessing.
0: Yeah, it's it's like a a DNA strand that you're pulling out, like a magical DNA strand, and it's mostly drawn, but as it goes on, you see something else that's black and red coiling around it.
2: And as she's holding it taut against you, uh, like, like in front of you, Jaron, she she says, tell me, what do you see?
7: Uh, It's, um... I'm not that familiar with soul magic, but I think that's, that looks like, I assume it's me, and, wait, what's that? The that, dark bit.
2: That, my dear Jaran, is unfortunately the contained mother's blessing.
7: No, they can't be right. You all sealed it off, right? It was supposed to be. It's... Ah, here.
2: She like pulls it like that tiny little piece just to hold it up to your face. We succeeded, you're correct. We contained it. It is all but a minute band-aid. Just not too dissimilar. And you see her about to chuckle like wryly, but she glitches. Similar to Oka's soul situation, it is but a temporary measure. This is not a wound I can heal, Jiran.
7: If it's like Oka's, then, then you can. You must be able to. You, you, you did it for them, right?
2: It was a temporary measure until Sen dived in like a shark into a feeding tank and uh, ripped sutures apart.
7: So what are you saying?
2: You're not a paragon, and you are in significant danger, and only similar to Oka, The intervention of the divine can save you now.
7: And I think Joran's eyes kind of, like, move over to Vasanthi, and he looks over at her and just kind of, like can probably, I think, like, still sense and feel, like, Scott and nectis kind of, like, moving and flowing inside of her. <sighs> Fuck. And before all
0: three of your eyes, as Voska's holding up Jaron's soul strand, uh, as Jaron's attention goes to Vasanti, we see a, <laughs> a part of the strand branch off and leap toward Vasanti sort of like a branch splitting in two, uh, and it sort of sh- shoots through the air and like almost seems to connect to Vasanti's soul uh, as a way of tugging your attention, Vasca, of your analysis over to another factor that you had overlooked initially. And you see it now, Vasca. And it uses threads, right? Connecting Geron and Vasanti, but this isn't just a bond of friendship. There's something deeper here. You see, purple and red strands binding their bond of friendship together scott and neptis's connection and you see that string of mother's blood also winding its way up through that strand and connecting geron's fate with vasantis in other words if geron turns so does she and on that evening closes in before we fully end that scene, Vasanti, I want you to make your war effort roll, too. I'll let you choose. If you want it to be about feeling that ancestral connection to Aunt Visanti, it'll be one roll. If you want it to be about your fate, it will be another. Tell me what you're interested in.
4: Oh, gosh. Uh, let's go with fate.
0: Can I give Bardic Inspiration You can. Yeah, I am allowing Please all sorts of bonuses it. and modifiers to these Have towards. mine
7: yes. as well.
0: Have
2: mine <laughs> as well. Okay. Please take my Bardic Inspiration.
0: So if so it's wait. fate, then I'll just make it a, a, a gay charisma check. So just add your charisma modifier and nothing else. As well as the two Bardic Inspos, so a D6 and a D12. D6 and a D12.
4: Okay. Does a 38 hit? Let's fucking go.
0: Noted. Uh, 38 has been noted. Uh.
2: (laughs) Okay, Connie, noted. Note that, Connie! (laughs) Note that!
0: I'm writing it down, writing it down. All right. And on that, evening is gonna close in. The bright crimson of the day fades into deep imperial red. It's easy to lose track of hours in the apocalypse. Ah, those flashing eyes, those gleaming pillars of destructive rays jolting the mind and addling the brain. And yet, through the frosted window of Dalapathy's farmhouse, we witness the sky change decidedly to a deeper, darker shade of blood red. We pull back from this window to find A vast living room, complete with lush rugs, a crackling fireplace, a chandelier, a ramp coils up the edges of the walls to a grand balcony level. And this farmhouse is filled with the smell of warm, home-cooked food, and the mirthful babble of many different, friendly voices. Oka, Dewey, Vasanti, Voska, Gentle Sitlali, Jaron, and Abiku, we find the eight of you lounging on couches, sitting in chairs, sitting cross-legged on cushions and rugs, nursing tea and drinks and little plates of delectable entrees. And over the course of this night, other friends and loved ones drift in and out of the space. At some point, we see Squeak dropping in, Shrine's definitely here, Wu Ming, Mercy, Kane, even other Alliance members like Root Sweetbreeze, Elder Pohaku at some point, and also at some point, Toktoa Uh, And all of you find that dinner just kind of springs spontaneously outward from this gathering. And you find yourselves soon on the receiving end of a toast from none other than Dalapathi Sayeed himself, the host uh, and patron of this particular farmhouse. He's standing in the center of the room holding court, uh, raising a glass to the ceiling. And I think this is the scene we come in on. Uh, everyone, everyone, everyone. And he's ding, 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 like tapping a knife against the glass, like so loud that it rings out kind of annoyingly over the space. Everyone, please, can I have your attention? Thank you. Uh, well, I just wanted to say a few words. You know, this is the night before the concert for the end of the world. Um, Is that the official name of the concert? Can we change it at this point? Is that uh, Voska Kane? Is, are you taking suggestions?
2: I think Voska looks over at Kane just to see if Kane has any burning suggestions before she offers an alternative.
0: Kane is sitting in Oka and Jaron's lap. Like they're sort of like splayed horizontally and they're like eating like a mini cupcake, I think. And their like tail keeps slapping Jaron in the face. Uh, and as they lounge very sluttily, might I say, looking up at Dalabhathi from the floor, they go. That name is indeed set in stone, darling. Concert for the End of the World. I mean, you can't get more grand than that. Well, I was thinking something like Paragoncert. Hmm? Hmm?
2: Paragoncert, the Concert for the End of the World, has an excellent ring to it.
0: No puns, Voska. Did you not read the dramaturgy notes I gave you?
2: I read it, but... Has a nice ring to it, Paragon
0: Then it's decided para the concert for the end of the world. Even as Cain, like, groans and throws their, like, eyes back in their head and mutters something about it being super, super cringy, um, Bidal-Khati smiles, <clears, <throat> clears his throat, absolutely rubs the now smooths patch where their goatee used to be, and then, like, before remembering that the goatee isn't there anymore, and goes, <clears throat> right, yes, anyway, well, it was just a little over a year ago at this point that four of you stumbled into my farmstead, and, uh, wow, so much has changed since then i mean the world has ended i've met the rest of you i shaved my goatee uh Kothor and i closed down our our thriving small business here so we could you know lend lend a hand to the war effort and i just want to say that this is what we're fighting for right and he like gestures at this room with all of you sitting in it and hanging out and laughing and smiling this isn't dake Right, it's us. You know, the stranger could take the Godspine. They could take the heaven at segur Sea, But this, Oblivion can't take that away from us. You know, I thought of a similar thing uh, when I first met Dr. Eluso. Uh, all, you know, at this point, like a year and a half ago. uh, Remember? I was telling you all about how all my tales, all my exploits of being an incredible adventurer, those were actually stories I took from Dr. Eluso. Uh, Well, I did visit the woman uh, at her homestead, uh, may it rest in peace, uh, before it was blown up, disintegrated by, by that huge I-beam. I visited her to, you know, get a first hand account of all the stories that I would later, you know, pass off as my own, uh, but you know, no harm, no foul. And um, it was actually during that conversation that uh, Oblivion did threaten me. <laughs> uh, but I guess she didn't really see me as worthy of being disintegrated like the homestead was by forementioned I-beam.
8: I'm,
1: s- I'm sorry. E- what? E- hmm? You e- met yes? Obli- wait. You? Why didn't you tell... I'm sorry, I've never met you.
0: What? Well, yes, I thought... And, like, Dalbathi looks kind of off at Kothor, who's also, like, sitting there, like, looking a little befuddled. I thought everyone knew. Well, when I visited Dr. Eluso, like, a year and a half ago... I, well, it must have been when they were on the verge of learning who they really were because, you know, their face didn't change. But it did change when I was asking them a bunch of questions. And while we were going over the stories of their exploits together, they seemed to be putting some things together. Yeah, I put up a literal conspiracy board and I was joining things together with strings. And I was like, well, if the stories of you rescuing this family of Bulets from 50 years ago is true, then ba da 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 And they were starting to piece it all together. And then, well, and then i met Oblivion and she was very, very scary. Uh, and she said that if I told anyone she would obliterate me on the spot.
8: but I, but she let me go. And you didn't think that that was maybe important information to
0: tell us before you sent us to visit Dr. Hitaaga Well, Oblivion said she'd obliterate me if I did, so I don't I don't know what you, what you want
7: from me, Oka. I mean, the, the world is literally ending. But, but that's not on me.
2: The, the temperature of the room drops
1: five degrees.
0: Cawthor, uh, can you fiddle with the thermostat, love?
1: I am sorry. Again, I have not. My name is Abiku. Um, so you thought that is, your safety was more important than telling us maybe the world could end because of our
0: friend? Well, I didn't even know you existed until like three days ago. Abiku That's first of
1: That's right. It, what about right? them? And points to Oka oh <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, after Oblivion retreated back into Doctor Eluso's subconscious and they sort of reset, I you know I figured I'd I'd, I'd let the man breathe and you know. Wait, I did you I'm tell Doctor Eluso? Wouldn't would know. Well, if I if I told Doctor Eluso, that was important. What well, they just hard reset themselves again? I mean, it'd, it'd be sort of like pressing you know restart, restart, restart on one of those URL machines.
8: I, I don't see how puts I'm gonna their head quiet. in their hands. Uh, and just buries their face in the back of Kane's hair.
2: Lord Saeed. Yes? Allow me to confirm that this is indeed the sequence of events. You piece together histories with Dr. Itsakuten and hmm followed by spending time. Actually, piecing together that perhaps they have been around longer than they might have realized.
0: Yes, and then they turned into oblivion during that same conversation. I don't really know how to describe it. They're just the. And they sort of mimic a a circular motion over their head and make a boom noise and they draw their uh, champagne flute like down their body and back up it again. And then they were different.
2: And you told no soul for a year and a half.
0: I would have been obliterated. What, little birdies tell me that a certain uh, Dr. Ting, back when the four of you were off gallivanting in the court and Rev just goes like from next to Vasanti, careful dollopathy. Well, no, 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 this is going somewhere. This goes. going, I promise. I hear from a little birdie that when Dr. Ting tried to come clean, he fucking unzipped.
4: So can you blame me? But you didn't know that then. You heard that well after the fact. That doesn't matter. You sent us into a trap, essentially. This is what I hear from it is, oh yeah, I knew I was sending you to a trap, but it's okay because I'm okay.
0: Well, you all were safe as long as you didn't figure it out again. Anyway, uh, gla- glasses up of juice and whatever other teas and beverages you might have. Uh, good health, to Endake. Our world is worth fighting for.
8: That was a bad speech.
0: Go, 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 I go, agree go,
8: go. with Biku. That was basically the worst speech I've ever heard in
7: my life.
4: Yeah, Vasanti does not raise a glass at all.
0: Dalipati uses
8: vodka.
7: Okay. Drops their entire drink in one go. <laughs> v-
2: Voska slides her drink over to Oka and gives them the biggest approval. To like, there's a look in her eye that I think Oka would recognize as. Do whatever the fuck you want, because you are absolutely entitled to do so, and I will not stop you.
8: <laughs> I think Oka takes the glass, really seriously considers it dumping over Delapathy, but then actually just slides it down the table at on again. They down that one in one go as well.
0: And I think at this point it's actually Toctoa actually sort of pushes off against the wall She's been been leaning against and she's been nursing like uh, some sort of like very refined drink this entire time She clears clears her throat and says everyone excuse me. I Really don't know how to follow that But I have some better news than what Dallipathy just brought upon us Uh, my paragon Cardew Quirk has been hard at work on the second iteration of the God Jar, and I think you have some physical proof to share with everyone now, don't you?
5: Uh, I do, it is not jars, and Dewey hurriedly like scrambles for, goes into his bag and pulls out a handful of what looks like just like various jewelry, detritus, just chains and uh, clasps everywhere, and it's all a tangled mess. and he's, <laughs> he realizes this looks bad and he uh, starts trying to untangle everything. And he's like, it's um, it's not a jar this time. They are sort of like the chisels that uh, we talked about earlier. Um, there's pairs of them. There's two of, aha, here we go. And he finally manages to free like two matching pieces. And there, there's like varying things in this pile of jewelry. There's like earrings. There are like cuff bracelets. There are little like, filled glass bottle necklace pendants um, but they all have the long rectangular chisel blade shape in common um with like the corners uh, at one end beveled and the blade edge is narrow but it's not like dangerous anymore it's been sanded down and there's like a small cutout in the center of each piece hollow but you know that it's brimming with like containment magic and it is the magic that will And Dewey's explaining this, and he's like, it's uh, hopefully the magic that will tether your soul to your counterparts uh, if and when things get dire. Of course, I still need like one last part. Uh, I can't do it without Forge, and Forge is currently not in my possession, Um, but things are going well. Everything's going according to plan.
0: Hana steps up. And like, it looks very proud of you, Dewey, actually, as you present these new versions of the not god jars and says, um, we- we've actually come up with a name uh, for th- this new iteration of the not god jar. Atanga uh, and I thought of it last night, uh, Dad, and uh, we thought that maybe we could call them Pendants of Fate, you know, partly for Dusty.
5: I love that. Uh, perfect. Pend- yes, they're not. They're not all pendant. but Yes. No, I love the name perfect
0: (laughs) and like tanga sort of leans behind like hana and sort of whispers in your ear. we can workshop the like exact details later but hana came up with it
5: oh yeah no it's perfect a fantastic name
0: uh here you go everyone and Hana and Tonga help you untangle the rest. I think Tonga pulls out a device that just magnetically separates them into like perfect piles, boop, 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 like detangles it, like in one fell swoop. And like these two people pick up these piles and start like giving them off to Paragon Keeper pairs, right? Like they go up to uh, Gentle and Vaska and hand you each like a pendant. They go up to Abiku and Rev and hand you each a pendant. Sitali and Oka and hand you each a pendant. Uh, Toktoa, Kagan and Dewey each a pendant, etc, etc, etc. Uh, I think until we reach Vasanti, Hana comes up to you and hands you your half of the Scott and Nectis kind of like duo jewelry. And I think Cain sort of like gets up a little bit attentively uh, from Oka and Jaron's lap and sort of gets up and stretches and just goes, oh yeah, well this doesn't pertain to me because I'm not okay, for a keeper or a paragon. I'm just going to um, double up on those spritzers over there. Uh, and they sort of like wander off to the side. Uh, and Oka and jeron both of you see Vasanti being handed, not just hers, but the other one for the Keeper as well, by Hana, and Hana sort of goes
4: off. I think Vasanti sort of, like, looks and, like, sheepishly and, like, a little bit even sadly, like, looks over to, like, jeron and Oka and just being, like, just like, <laughs> as, like, like, you know, uh, the kid who wasn't allowed at the cool kid table just sitting by herself.
8: Vasanti, don't give me those puppy dog eyes. You know they always work on me. And Oka, I think, kind of shuffles over on the pillows and almost like rolls and crawls over to Vasanti and kind of bumps her shoulder with their own, looks up at her sideways, and there's this like really deeply tired look on their face, but there's something a lot more hopeful about it the first time that they were here. And they look up at Vasanti, kind of sad that you don't have someone to match with.
4: Yeah, it would be sure great if someone, um, you know, became my keeper and uh, I could share this with them. <laughs> and I, I think also uh, when Oka looks at it's like, I feel like they both have a moment uh, of looking at each other and seeing, like, how much they've changed this past year of, like, Vasanti, her hair is longer, she's got still the faint scars of almost being pulled apart and the different colors and also seems a little bit tired. Uh, yeah, I think they both just, like, have that energy together as they're looking at each other.
8: Well... Remember the first time we were here, technically, and we had to share a room, and I was so certain that you were going to go into my bag, steal all my things, and be gone in the morning?
4: Oh yeah, I was going to do that, but you all seemed very on edge about it, so I felt like it wasn't the time. I was, I was going to do it eventually.
8: Oh, really? Really? Because I actually remember you falling asleep so fucking fast uh, that I could hear you snore for a good hour before I fell asleep.
4: Look, I was tired all right. right? Who was the one who dealt, like, the, the final blow to those empty bees? It was, uh... I am a goddess, she says.
8: <laughs> look at you now.
4: <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm like half... I've got goddesses inside of me and gods. That's a big change. Let me hold on to that for you.
8: Until he's ready. They say that kind of lower and look at
4: Jaron. I think Vasanti's face, um has a sudden urge of, like, you can tell she's, like, holding back a little bit of happy tears. And she just, like, looks in Oka's eyes and, like, I've missed you so much these last few months when we've been apart.
8: I've missed you too. But now, and they kind of take Vasanti's, twirl it around their finger, uh, and then, like, go to, like, hook it up um, on one of the bottom rungs of the ribcage armor that they wear. So it almost, like, dangles off of their own bone. Now, we will never be apart. Yeah?
0: Always come when you call? That kind of thing? Always. And on that, I think we pan to a different corner of the room where a Keeper-Paragon pair are also having a conversation. And we pull in on the moment of Gentle and Vasca receiving your pendants.
2: I think Vasca offers gentle to you gentle to help tie your bracelet to your wrist because it's hard to tie your own bracelet to your own wrist and she kind of walks up towards you and she says come let me help and just if you allow her begin tying the little threads to your wrist and i think like both vaska's and gentle's match i'd like to think that they're like just several weavings of thread and the attachment itself where you're supposed to join it upon the wrist is just three to four threads that you tie and weave and plaid together and tie it and I think voskas ties hers that to you in a similar nodding style of parable and ties it against your wrist
3: Perfect. Um, do you need me to help you with yours too?
2: Please. And holds out her wrist.
3: Um, I don't know if I'm necessarily as good at tying knots as you, so I might need a little help, but I'll do my best. No worries. Take
2: your time.
0: And I think on that, we pull to a different corner of Dalapathy's farmhouse, where we find Rev and Abiku. I think Rev's piece of jewelry is a little, like, pendant, uh, that looks like it could tie around her neck, it could tie around her wrist, it could tie around anywhere. And like the end of it almost looks skull-like, like a, almost like a little bit porous, like a piece of bone uh, with some black engravings on it. And if you're cool with an I think yours also like kind of mirrors, revs a little mm. bit, but obviously has your own embellishments on it.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah, I think Ibiku's sits like a choker because she's big, <laughs> uh, but she, um, do you want some help to put yours on? Everyone else seems to be doing, like,
0: a whole thing. Oh, uh, y- yeah, you know, what? Why not? I was thinking of tying it around my uh, upper arm here. And she holds sure. out, like, her bicep, basically, um, to you. You know, like a like a bond.
1: Y- no, that is that is smart. Um, you have to be careful flexing, though, you don't to break it.
0: Ha! <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, I trust Dewey's craftspersonship. Uh, if this thing can break with a simple flexion of the bicep... I... Anyway... And she presents her arm to you.
1: Um, and she'll start doing it up. So I can call Grim. And we just had not talked about what is going on.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. You know what? That would actually make a lot of sense because I did try to summon Grim like the other day while I was fighting. You know, my entropic beast um, in the court. Oh. And it, you know, it got a good hit on me. It sort of pummeled me into the grave. A little. We were fighting in a graveyard. Long story. Uh. But um. Yeah. Looks like we can share them now.
1: Okay. Uh. My bad. I. I was trying to help the and I thought something of yours would help.
0: No, I'm glad you were able to do that. I actually, that actually makes me feel good, Abiku. It's good to know that, well, the world is in capable hands with yours.
1: Oh yes, of course. Um, did you help and Abiku will turn out and like lift her hair up?
0: Oh yeah, of course. And she like also takes her piece of jewelry and starts putting it around your neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you do, you feel like her cold, dry fingers like graze against your skin, and there's like a, a moment of silence as she works, and she says, "I'm, really." Glad I got to know you, Abigu. It's good to have someone like you here who understands what it's like to come back, to fight for a world that's changed. I am glad
1: I got to know you too. I know we got off on a—I don't know—bad, a weird foot. I—I I had a whole like chosen one complex thing.
0: Yeah, I know. I was gonna just let you figure that out on your own. Ah, here, and she finishes the clasp and likes mm. what I'm thumps you in, like, a sibling-like manner on the back. Uh, hey, listen, Abiku. Hmm. If anything happens, can you take Mm -hmm. care of her for me? Uh,
1: Of course, but you have to make the same promise for me. And she looks at Shunyi.
0: (laughs) Right, of course. And I think, speaking of Shunyi, we pan to the corner of the farmhouse that she's in, and we see that she's kind of tracked down Voska and Gentle, sort of in like the same area. And it's sort of like, I think, wringing her fingers together a little bit, looking between the two of you, uh, and she's sort of going, "Uh, Gentle, Voska, I think I have something that belongs to the two of you that I I asked for back in the chasm back when I was desperate and hungry, it it won't be so easy for me to give it back. It did save my life. So if I were to just give it up as is to you, I might, well, you know, but but there there is a way for the two of you to get it back, I think.
2: I think Voska closes the distance. And if Shunyi so allows, like, holds her hand onto her shoulder, not at any risk to you. You are precious to her.
0: Of course. Of course. I've been uh, meditating a lot these past few days, ever since the dust began to fall. And I think I'll be able to pull out these aspects that belong to the two of you and gift them to you, but the process of receiving it again will be tremendous.
3: Is doing it here uh, safe? I don't want to put anyone at risk for it.
0: This is a beautiful farmhouse. I would hate for it to burn. So maybe... During the concert? Yeah.
2: Certainly. If that is safe and you are certain.
0: Yes, I am certain. All right, then. We'll uh, talk more tomorrow.
2: Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you. And I think on that, we are going to pan over across this impromptu dinner to find a different Keeper Paragon pair, the Heroes of Sen. Oka and Sitlali, how are the two of you putting on your pendants?
8: I think that Dewey uh, kind of shoved both of them into Oka's hands as he was anxiously going around and passing them out. And they kind of like look at both of them, these reminiscent of the chisel, but with less weight, a little bit lighter, a different kind of weapon, so to speak. And Oka looks up and, I think, catches Sitlali's eyes, I'm sure, from across the room, and they kind of get out of their cuddle pile with Kane and Jaron, uh, pull themselves up out of the pillows and cross the room. And if Sitlali is sitting, I think Oka actually comes to, like, kneel down in front of them on both of their knees and gives them a deeply tired but fond smile, and Oka kneeling uh holding one of the pendants in each of their hands and i think they go to like unclasp one of the necklaces to put it around sit lolly's neck and then their eyes fall down slightly to the skull that houses adam's soul and they make a kind of face i don't really know if that's where i'm supposed to be Here, you know that's it's fair. Um,
6: that's fair. That's <laughs> fair. And like, gives so, like, this kind of awkward laugh and like, almost self-consciously, like puts a hand over the skull. Um, and there's like a tiny, you would notice, there's like a tiny bit of a shake to it um, as they are trying to downplay the weight of what they are carrying.
8: And Oka reaches out their hand and puts it over Sitlali's on top of the skull, immediately stopping that downplay, I think. And they look with this kind of reverence and focus that reminds you that they are, in fact, a prince, and that ritual is part of who they are, too. And they smile still, this tired fondness. Draw your sword, Keeper of sun. Of course, my paragon. And they do. My paragon. Sounds funny coming from you.
6: Is there something you would prefer, Princelet?
8: All right, there it is. Yep, all right. Uh, And Oka smiles sideways, this little smirk coming out of the corner of their broken lips, as they start to tie the pendant around the hilt of Sitlali's ripier instead. And then, I think once that's done, they go to their back and they unsheath dream hunter and balance it in their hands looking at it like it's the lightest thing in the world and it's also the heaviest stone and they hold it out to sit Lolly to tie her pendant around. And they do
6: with the same as because ritual is in their bones as much as it is Oka's and there is a very deliberateness to all of it. And I think the weave kind of not bends, but tightens almost around them, and the wings come out and kind of split into four to mirror Oka's and this like out swirling alcohol ink as they tie this pendant to Dream Hunter.
8: And then I think with the blade in both of their laps. Oka looks, and they nod. Bound by fate, blood, and the gods. And choice. And change. And all other things. And Oka leans forward and takes the back of Sitlali's neck and presses their foreheads
0: together and closes their eyes and holds them together like that for a long moment. And on that we are going to pan to a different corner of Dalapathy's homestead to find the Keeper and Paragon of Galtanger. Dewey! Toctoa is sort of, like, towering over you, like her arms are crossed in front of her chest. She's looking at you. Uh, What does your Pendant of Fate look like?
5: Uh, Dewey's is sort of a... It's a web of, like, chains with the chisel part as, like, a segment in the chain his wraps around um the upper part of his thigh and he turns to Taktoa and he's like can i it, the one i made for you is a little different um you mind if i just uh, it's really complicated can i just put it on you
0: uh yeah go ahead and she sort of like awkwardly leans down because you're sh- much shorter than her
5: yeah i think Dewey gets on like the arm of a couch uh he like stands on top of the arm of the couch to get to the uh to, like it goes around her neck and mm-hmm. then uh Like, the chisel part sits flat on her sternum, and it sort of uh, splits into two around the edges of, like, where her ribcage are. Um, And it's sort of like a chain chest piece a little bit.
0: Oh. This is actually pretty badass.
5: Yeah, I figured you might like that. Uh, Thanks.
0: I do. I do like it. Why the leg?
5: Oh, um, originally I was going to make, like, an armband, but I have no... Upper arm strength, and I figured it would fall off of my bicep.
0: You know what? That's a pretty smart uh, piece of design there. And uh, listen, Cardu, thanks for making all these on such short notice.
5: Yeah, uh, no problem. I just need a couple days to sleep, and then I'll be ready to go for the big fight.
4: Hmm.
0: Well, the Alliance is in your debt.
5: No debt. The only thing we owe is to each other.
0: Hmm. I like that. And she sort of claps you on the shoulder and squeezes like <laughs> once kind of paternalistically and <clears, <throat> clears her throat, turns, and you you get this and she's almost like gathering up her courage or something. She sort of <clears throat> straightens her back and turns to the corner where you see Rev and Abiku. You see like Rev putting the finishing touches of like putting on the clasp uh, around Abiku's neck and talk to a Latara. All right. Well, here we go. <clears throat> and she starts to stride across the room toward Abiku and Rev. As she's cutting across this room, I think there's an interruption.
8: Yeah, Oka's wing, like, knocks over some random piece of pottery that they then, uh, kind of catch, uh, a little bit. Whew, okay, uh, that's fine. Uh, and they cut in front of Taktoa, like, as they're doing that, and they turn to Abiku. Uh, Abiku, hey, 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 uh, did you still want to sleep together tonight?
1: Oh, yes, we yeah. That would work for me.
0: Toktoa freezes in the middle of the room uh, on that and like her face kind of blanches <clears throat> and she like pretends that she's looking at a book that's right next to her like on like a coffee table and like reaches down and picks it up and starts reading it uh, and turns around and like walks in a random direction. I,
1: if I may, I think Abiku looks over Oka. You are holding that upside down. Huh?
0: Oh, You are holding the book. No, it's it's a Kyrian thing. Oh, we read okay. books in common upside down. You know, oh. because if, when we're on mm-hmm. horseback and we pull out books while we're riding, it's just, it's a thing. <clears throat> it's culturally informed. Uh, and she oh. very quickly walks away.
1: I just look at Oka. She is so cute when she like, pretends.
8: Do you have to speak over my head? It makes me feel really short.
1: I, I am sorry that you are short.
8: Not exactly where I was going, but uh, we, uh, we should. Well, if you still want to, we should, we should head out.
1: Yeah, well, that, okay. Let me say bye to Shunnyi.
0: All right, my love. Uh, Shrini goes over to you, sort of kisses you, says, um, have fun trying to dream. Don't go too deep in.
1: We will be careful, don't worry. Um, you have a good time, be careful.
0: I will. All right, I'll see you later tonight.
1: See you, I love you.
0: I love you too. And now we cut to Dalapathi Saeed's private meditation room. It's a rounded chamber made of warm, porous wood. Gems, bones, books, scrolls sit on shelves carved from polished sandalwood. A soft red light filters through a shaded window. Even softer cushions and extremely soft pillows line the floor. Incense burns, filling this chamber with a thin haze of smoke. This place has all the trappings of a dream prophet's desired furnishings, but Oka and Abiku, as the two of you set foot inside this meditation chamber, you see Halo in the middle of rearranging everything in here. She's kind of like muttering under her breath posers uh and she's like migrating the incense holder to the west windowsill facing it away from the north right she's like turning all the mirrors so they're not looking at the center she's even repositioning like the pillows on the floor uh and she's like in the middle of this hustle and bustle right her like beautiful elliot robes like squishing by her legs she pauses and she looks up uh and turns to see the two of you entering ah there the two of you are it's about time are you ready well, uh, just don't, uh, uh, Halo! Hey, hey, hi! We're here. We're ready. Hello. Hello, Paragon of Sen and Keeper of the Raven Queen. It is an honor to shepherd the two of you through the Dream Realm.
1: Yes, my name is Abiku. Um, you can just call me Abiku. That's okay. I realize you've met met me.
0: Uh, certainly, Abiku.
8: Right, so it should be, uh, uh, you know, you know what you're doing here better than I do, uh, and Oka kind of starts fidgeting with the new, like, tassel of, uh, Vasanti's kind of on the end of their ribcage, uh, just playing with it back and forth, a little gold coin in between their fingers, and they look at Ibiku. So, right, I did make you this promise that I would help you try to dream again for the first time since coming back from the dead, since that was a problem for me, and
0: it sucks.
1: Yeah, I, I am ready to do this. I like your horns, by the way. They are very you. pretty. Thank
0: uh, I was born this way. Uh, as soon as I, well, was shepherded into this world, my parents took one look at me and thought that perhaps a dream prophet was my destined future, and they turned out to be correct.
1: Oh, well, I, I'm glad you want to like, foster anything then.
0: Uh, no, this is my destiny.
1: Oh. Right. Oh, Oh. it's okay. When this is over, you could do something else, like, I don't know, like accounting, or who knows?
0: Uh, (laughs) if this is over, Abiku Ishtar, Keeper of the Raven Queen, the rivers of fate are in divergence, at the threshold of the conclusion of the Second Stranger War. It is entirely up to us, how the future of Endake plays out.
1: You are, you was a lot of very important, where should I sit?
0: Oh, well, yes, make yourselves comfortable uh, upon these pillows, cushions, and blankets. There is a lot of literature about the best position to induce a lucid dream or to commune with ancestral knowledge. But I think, based on a lot of trial and error and my own philosophical meanderings, that the best position is the one you're most comfortable in. So sleep however you want to sleep. Body-wise, of course.
1: Abiku literally sits where she was standing. Wonderful.
8: That works. Uh, right, okay. You don't have a heartbeat, so I can't hear you, so I, uh... And I think Oka also sits down right there and puts their back to Abiku's back. So they can just, like, get a read on her body.
0: Are the two of you quite sure you don't want to lie down?
1: I have not lied down to sleep in a year. Also, I don't, I don't really sleep. I don't know if that will be a problem.
0: It shouldn't be. Don't worry. Perhaps for a dream prophet a little less skilled than me, but I'll be able to usher in a nice sleep. All right, then I will join the two of you like so. And she very elegantly and gracefully lifts up her skirt and like sits down at the same time in like a flurry of robes and puts her back against the two of yours as well. So the three of you are triangulated at the threshold of the meditation room. And she very like subtly pulls some pillows in and like cushions her hips and like pads some blankets around all of you. Wonderful. Then please, the two of you, close your eyes, focus on my voice, focus on your breathing, in, out, in, out, and she begins to recite a sutra in Tulongan. Like this kind of like low rolling scripture that goes back and forth, back and forth, making you think of like being swayed to sleep in a bassinet almost. It's like very rhythmic, very low. And as the two of you close your eyes, you find yourselves sinking into slumber. Lulled into peace by Halo's sweet, rolling sutra. And when you open your eyes again, you're in a grand hall. Tall, marble walls stretch toward a vaulted ceiling. And on that ceiling, you see panels of colorful, intricate paintings. On your feet, or rather beneath them. You see lush tracks of carpet stretching from this central atrium you're in toward different hallways branching off like arteries from a heart. A ribbon of stairs coils up, up, up to various balcony levels above your heads. And at the back of this grand hall, we see the skeleton of a massive tarasque. Oka and Ibiku. The two of you stand in the center of this foyer, and next to you, Halo is cupping her fingers in front of her waist as always, looking around quite attentively. Ah, yes, of course, this must be the Iron Citadel. It looks like maybe it's the atrium. This place is coming from you, Abiku. I can sense it, like warmth radiating from a fire. How are the two of you feeling?
1: Um, it's weird. I have been here twice now. One time I died, one time I did not die, so.
0: Yes, well, your subconscious must have perceived this place as a location of great import. Must be why it's surfacing now. Oka is staring at the giant Tarrasque
8: skeleton. One head cocked to the side, and I think they start moving toward it. Like they're going to go check for uh, stab wounds on the bone plate of its chest. I feel like I know that guy from somewhere. I know that guy. No, I know that guy. Why is he looking at me like that?
0: Oka, breathe. The dream responds to your emotions. You must both be in control and go with the flow of fate. Do you want to get married again? Huh? Um,
1: I'm going to go this way, if that is okay.
0: (laughs) Because you turn to start to, like, stride away. Uh, I think there's a thunk noise as one of the ribs of the Tarasque like, breaks off and falls onto the ground.
8: Uh, No, I definitely know that guy. Yeah, no, yeah.
0: And as you look at the Tarasque between you and Halo, you see the. You think you see uh like knife or gouge marks on some of like the skeletal structure of the bones that you're almost certain, you know, were scored from a very familiar position? <clears throat> okay What do you mean
8: get married again? Get married again? What? You wanna get married again? No, that's not
0: you said something about marriage. You You don't want to get married again. No. Yes? No, what? Okay, is this how you really feel? What? Uh, Abiku? Abiku, wait, uh, hold on. No, no, no. Uh, and as you start to turn and move, it's like moving in a dream. Like it's really slow. Like you're trying to run, but you can't. And like Halo walks toward you in like perfect speed. Like she hasn't been slowed, like slowed down at all. She's just right in front of you. And Abiku, you're also moving in like super slow motion. And we watch Halo roll her eyes and walk up to both of you in like normal speed. And she taps both of you on like the backs of your necks and you feel this like heavy weight fall and you're sort of like rooted to the spot. Please don't try to run away when I'm trying to help the two of you. Oka, reveal to me the truth of your heart. And you feel this like (laughs) Like warm sensation, like water just falling over your shoulders and your back, just wash over you, and you can suddenly move in normal speed again. And so, can you, Abiku? You're also kind of jolted out of this, like, kind of like molasses, icy, like uh, paralysis that you've been sunk into. Uh, and when you turn, Oka, kind of staggering, and you look at Halo inside of you, you feel this emotion that had impelled you to say that thing to Halo in the first place, I think, bubble up again.
8: I can't believe she's zoned of truth me. And I think it all just kind of spills out of Oka's mouth like a waterfall. I. I I do. I love you. I've loved you since we were kids. I've loved you for my entire life. And I do want to be with you, but I'm terrified. I'm so fucking scared, Halo, of losing you because everything I seem to touch seems to fall away and become just lost to me. Everything is lost. And I, I can't make plans for the future because I don't know it. I'm not like you. I've never been good at this. And I'm terrified. And I'm just trying to do one thing for Abiku so that she can dream and have a good dream before we all almost die tomorrow. And I don't know what I'm doing, ever. And I don't know how to be in love without holding a sword about it and hurting someone, and I don't want to hurt you, and I've never wanted to hurt you because I am in love with you.
0: Oh God, I... And then something bad happens. A hole. Round. Black. Immaculate. Forms in the ceiling of this dream. At first, it's no bigger than the head of a pin. But by the moment, by the minute, by the second, it metastasizes. It becomes the size of a ping-pong ball, a dinner plate, the wheel of an ox cart. And as it does, the edges of the Iron Citadel begin to bleed away, like writing in sand seeding space to a blank, white Desolate, lonely expanse of dead grass, dead souls, dead gods. And Halo's face turns from this sort of like brimming kind of hope and fear and this almost like intimacy into panic welling in her eyes, but it's a very controlled and restrained panic here. Like she's still like, she's riding a horse that's beginning to buck, but she's like, Still in control of the situation, and she looks at you, Oka, and says, "Oka, this is just a dream. This is you. It's coming from you. It's okay. Breathe. It's happening again. It's happening again. It's happening again. This isn't real. No, Oka. No, 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 no. Deep in, Oka, and the last of the Citadel vanishes, and the three of you are in Tongal, the Dead Realm." With the seed of annihilation blooming above your heads like a flower. Halo, in that moment, lets out a cry, and Abiku and Oka, the two of you, see her vanish. Just like that. In one blink, she was there next to you, and then she's gone. And before either of you can do more than just react with a breath, that's when you see her. On the horizon, On her knees, actually, back turned to the two of you, wearing Oka's black sleeveless turtleneck. Dr. Hitzagaten Aluso. On the day of the concert for the end of the world, Oka Hien and Abiku Ishtar do not wake. Halo, the dream wise, is frantic. She crouches over Oka and Abiku's immobile forms laid out on the floor of the Saeed's living room. Next to her kneels Emperor Zhen, the paragon of Mengshan Zhudi. This human person calmly sweeps their palms over Abiku's body and then the body of their true-born child. Though their face does not betray anything but concentration, the magic rolling off their body is desperate. Searching, and in a shimmer of light, Omen is summoned, a beautiful dark wooden guzhin. They begin to play, each note resonating through Oka and Abiku's bodies, but still, they do not wake. At this point, Hours have elapsed since Oka and Abiku's lack of consciousness was discovered late last night. Halo had jolted awake, but neither of her companions joined her. And now, with mere hours to spare before the concert begins, it's Kane who speaks up. Well, everyone. Regardless of if Oka and Abiku manage to wake up in time, the show must go on. We have too much riding on this. What do you say, everyone? Places? Only if
7: we can be sure that we can wake them. We can't do this without both of them.
0: Oka's mother-father looks up and I think those like beads coming off of like her royal crown sort of jingle lightly against each other. And you see those like mismatched eyes, one with three pupils, one with only one, bore into you, Jaron.
7: They will wake. Then places. We should be ready for when they do. And on that,
0: we cut to the concert stage, fully built. It is a massive structure, a hundred feet wide, 80 feet deep, with an arched roof of over 60 feet tall to shield all of you from this falling white and red dust. There are no seats here. There's no audience, except for one, of course. In the sky, all around you, crimson eyes, blink irises, swirl pupils, rove, rove, rove. And as all of you prepare for the concert to begin, I want each of you, except for Ibiku and Oka for now, of course, to tell me what your role is. Let's start with Voska.
2: How fucking dare you? (laughs) Voska is performing and the entire time she is, she's never been this nervous. I think there's perhaps one other moment before a big, a big interaction with many, many audience members in which she was this nervous. And she is, her role is to get on that stage with Parable and perform the most entrancing dance of her life to bring everyone's spirits up and invite whoever is on stage to finally dispatch of the empty beast line her.
0: Mm, I love that. What kind of dance are you doing? Is it just to draw attention or is there a greater, a different kind of purpose to it as well?
2: Uh, I think it's, it is to inspire. I think the kind of dance that she is performing, she is wearing this skin tight kurta that wraps around her body really tightly and there's these like her the paragon that came before her she has this bit of cloth that she wraps around her waist and her trousers are tight against her legs and she the kind of dance that she does is elegant and light flighty and inspiring and she will be using Paragon to be swinging from one edge to the other of the stage, and also using Parable as an instrument, where she will play almost like a rowdy, robunctious stringed instrument, not, di- not dissimilar from an electric guitar. And she just weaves that sound around to just rally everybody.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, I think on that, we're gonna cut and pan away from this particular part of the stage where you're rallying, inspiring, goading, right? Across this wooden platform, a spotlight following you, music swelling both from your instrument and amplified magically by various runes and sigils that Dalapathi and Cawthor have placed along the pylons. We're gonna pan to a different part of this stage to find Vasanti. How are you assisting?
4: I think Vasanti has become like the pyrotechnics uh, expert. So like she is using like dimension door and stuff and, and shooting all over different parts of stage to, to light fireworks as needed. And as you know, the show is building and swelling to crescendos, some platforms that she had installed near the top of the space, she goes up there and like swelling with the music creates a draconic, dragon spirit just sort of flying around and above the uh, the stage of you know it's it's looks like it's on fire but sometimes it's purple sometimes it's green sometimes it goes red and it's just roaring and filling the sky with this bright light
0: I love that. I think, like, sound and music crescendo, these fireworks, I think, ksh, 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 explode in these massive, colorful blooms as this draconic spirit coils and coils and coils above where Vasca is also dancing. And we see, like, slowly one by one, those, like, massive irises of all the eyes on the horizon begin to drift in the direction of the concert stage and start to notice it. And I think it's around your moment of the performance, Vasanti, that several shoot beams down pulverizing massive spears of light uh, that I think are countered by this huge like force field shield that the other uh, alliance members and allies and friends are busy keeping erected uh, as they're patrolling the perimeter of the stage as well. And I think on the dragon spirit swirling through the atmosphere, we're gonna pan down over and find Gentle. Gentle, what is your role in this concert?
3: Um, is there glitter? Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, glitter and then probably like an an orb of light attached at both of my wrists. I am doing the equivalent of flying through the air, creating like a light show, Uh, like just elaborate shapes and stuff, Uh, and glitter just trailing behind. Very Peter Pan, now that I think about it.
0: Gentle's pink era. I'm into it. (laughs) You're just (laughs) flying through the air, raining glitter. I love this. I love this. Okay, yeah, fantastic. I think along the coiling draconic spirit, we also see Gento's form, like spitting through the air, pouring this like sparkling glitter uh, that starts to weave together with this crimson and white dust, right? And illuminates it. This dead anti-soul matter uh, gets sparkled. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, becomes lucent and becomes backlit, I think, by the orbs of light emanating from Gentle's hands, as well as the glitter they're trailing behind them. And we follow a literal sparkle trail uh, to find in this crowd, Geron.
7: Jerron's role in the Paragoncert, uh, I think, is that of void zookeeper. His role specifically is to ensure that the empty beasts that are being utilized for this performance are kept in line, kept in control and are not being controlled by by the stranger, by oblivion, by anybody who would oppose us. I think their connection to the empty, uh, it's their job to observe it, not to wield it, they can't afford to wield it, but to observe it in order to get a better sort of connection and sense of how the empty beasts are doing and whether or not we're in any real danger.
0: Yeah, uh Voska, you described that you were on stage with these monsters, right, with these beasts. So I think maybe, Jeron, we find you in the wings, observing and like listening both, I think, to your brain, your mind, but also now to that pulsing, throbbing wound in the whole of your soul. And as we see these chained and trapped entropic beasts like snarling and fretting against their restraints on the stage uh, accompanied by Voska, with every snarl, every jerk forward against these chains, Geron, you also feel a similar kind of throbbing beginning to pulse harder more painfully, more insistently against the veins of your soul. And like, I think there's even a moment in the concert where like your vision goes a little hazy as like Voska hits a, a particularly high note and several of the entropic beasts like a, like a, like a snarl. We see that two headed snake uh, kind of like thump, like one of its heads smash it uh, against the ground even as, as it's chained down onto the floor and like crater like a wooden hole on the ground. And that gets your vision to pulse and, like, flutter and blur in front of your eyes, and you hear, like, a growl coming from really close to you, like a... And, like, you're like, oh, God, like, did one of the beasts get empty? And it takes you a minute to realize that it's coming from you.
7: I think Jeron, like, jerks his head at that, and, like, snarls a little bit, his lip moving, and they try and, like, shake their head like it's a fucking etch-a-sketch, and, like, trying to clear it, and they try and center themselves, look over towards where Vasca is performing, and they try and push, push as far as they can, this feeling of pain of ferocity this this newfound ferocity like deep deep down you're just trying to push it down as far back as they can because they can't deal with this right now they don't have time to deal with this right now and I mm-hmm. think they're sort of like fighting themselves at the same time that they are trying to keep an eye on these empty beasts
0: Mm. The more you try to fight this newfound pulsing kind of ferocity trying to break free of your chest, the harder the struggle becomes. The blurriness gets thicker and thicker, and Joran, I think you instinctively know that this is it. You're coming up on borrowed time here. It's going to be now or never very soon. But we have one more person to account for here. We pan away from you, Joran, and we settle in. On Dewey.
5: Dewey has helped a little bit with the tech setup. Um, he's helped a little bit with the lights. Um, he's directed to uh, directed some wizards to keep the lights going and also to like point them in the direction of the eyes if they get too close. Uh, these enormous floodlights. Um, but as soon as those first uh, the first few notes of the concert start, he's he's delegated everything off to other people and he runs for uh the teleportation dais because he's got other business to take care of
0: mm, all these distractions yes. going on i think the alliance has set up a uh impromptu teleportation dais here at fire root farm uh especially for this express purpose and it's like not made of beautiful stone carved with these special runic sigils like at dr Hitsagaton's homestead but it's kind of like a Hackney kind of put together real fast. It's like barely made from proper stone. There's still, it hasn't been sanded off properly. It kind of looks like a hunk of a boulder you have to clamber on top of. And like several sigils are just sort of etched along the side. As you approach this dais, which is maybe, let's say, like 30 feet off to like the side in the grass uh, in this fallow field of the stage itself, what do you do?
5: I climb atop this uh, boulder of a dais and I put in the runes for the URLs most high-security stock room.
0: All right. And you initiate the transfer. Dewey, your form unravels. You feel yourself pulling away like lovers at a train station. And your atoms scatter. Your mind comes loose. You discorporate. For a fraction of reality, light, sound, space, time, all these reified concepts, they cease to exist. You are, simply put, nothing. And then your feet hit solid ground, you stagger against a concrete floor, and the world around you spins into being, all bleeding lines of light and smell, like a time-lapse of the night sky. And you arrive in the URL. in a storeroom or rather what used to be a storeroom right now it's just a blasted stretch of tiled floor a shattered window off to the side broken table tools implements scattered everywhere scientific charts stitch the walls here some are half burned others are black and smeared with blood frankly everywhere here Dewey smells like death but more than that It is completely, utterly, perfectly silent. The only thing you can hear is your own mouth breathing. And after a second, I think, as you, like, collect your bearings and sort of step off of this, like, miniature dais at the back of the storeroom, you can hear your own heart beating, too. That's how quiet everything is. No whispers, no shouting, no crunching of boots over broken glass. It's just you, Dewey. Instinctually, I think you know this. It's just you. And somewhere else in here, her. What do you do?
5: Dewey takes a a long, deep breath. He undoes the clasp of the bomb watch and pulls it off of his wrist. And true to light, true to Lilith's tauntings, uh, nothing quite happens yet. It um, doesn't explode. He doesn't blow up in a poof of feathers. Um, but he does take a look at the underside, the part that was uh, flush against his wrist, this whole time. Um, and he takes out his set of tools, and using very small uh, a very small set of screwdrivers, removes um, a piece of the watch, and then leaves. The watch sitting on the floor of the stockroom, and then he takes that piece with him and books it out of the storeroom towards Lilith's chambers.
0: Okay, what exactly have you done while you fiddled with your watch?
5: So there's a there's a mechanism in the watch that would alert Lilith that Dewey had taken off the watch. I assume. So he wants to be running. He wants to be elsewhere when it goes off and alerts Lilith that. Hey, something's gone wrong.
0: Okay, I'm gonna ask you, I think for your, for your war effort roll here, to be a tinker check. So make me a sleight of hand, like, like you're using your tools sort of check, and add your uh, proficiency bonus to it. 28. Noted, 28. Uh, as you leave a part of this watch, inside the storeroom and you exit. Uh, You find yourself in a larger laboratory. Uh, Here there's all sorts of, like, shattered glass. There are what used to be, like, experiment tables strewn with blood and gore and other kinds of fluids you don't want to think about. Uh, And the ground is also shattered with all kinds of liquids and corpses. Though there aren't too many corpses. There are some remnants of corpses that look like maybe they've been eaten into, uh, but most of them are face down and they're barely recognizable. Corpses of monsters, corpses of... Researchers, people, beasts, even, I think you see in like a corner of this lab, like the fallen form of an emissary. It looked like it was once a bird aflame, but now that flame has gone out. It's very ominous and sinister, because these hallways are completely silent, but they're still sort of like pulsing red, but the alarm has long since gone quiet. So it's just the sound of your own breath, the sound of like your feet crunching over the, this like shattered glass and like the pulsing v- 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 of like the red emergency lights going bright and low, bright and low, bright and low. When they go low, it's completely dark because there are no windows in this particular hallway. So you're like, we see you in like flashes of light, of blood red light as you're just like running down a hallway getting closer and closer and closer. Almost like you're jumping through time as we don't see you and then see you and then don't see you and then see you. And Dewey, that's when you hear another sound. Somewhere deeper in the facility as you round a corner, you hear the unmistakable hissing noise of a sealed hermetic chamber door sliding open. And you hear like heels clacking down a hallway, like probably one or two over from the one you're in.
5: Yes, I I think I stop for a moment just so that my footsteps don't give me away. And then as soon as I hear the heels further down the hall, I keep going.
0: You resume your investigation to find Forge. And after I think a couple of false starts, like you open up a couple offices and you look around, cabinets and stuff, not there. Like you open up like a door and you like rifle around a a desk. You like peer into experiment chambers, not there. You finally strike gold. This particular workshop chamber is an understated one. It's like chamber 32B or something like that. It's not, not one of the first ones that leaps to mind where you think Lilith would keep a prize mule, right? But perhaps her logic is to hide something in plain sight. So here, workshop chamber 32B, the hermetic seal hisses open as I think you're very easily able to hack into the console, just given how good you are with your tools. Uh, And you see, Almost like a, uh, a, this is like an active laboratory. There's like a single bench, a single workbench in the center, all kinds of tools just sort of floating in midair. Almost like they've been left in stasis. Like you feel magic still sort of cupping the air here. And upon that workbench is Forge. And next to Forge is the chassis of like a replica. As soon as your eyes land on Forge, you feel Galtanger rising in your soul, urging you to grab it.
5: I wrap one of my arms around the real Forge. And then I hold out another hand very gingerly to pick up the small false Forge. Sort of like uh, looking at it, trying to figure out uh, what its deal is. If it's worth taking with me, if it's dangerous to take with me.
0: Whatever its deal is, there are tons of schematics laid out and, like, notes written in this long, slanted, messy longhand that you recognize. Um, it definitely hasn't been infused with any kind of magic yet. It's sort of just a base. So right now it's just sort of like the chassis for what would be a kind of metallic version of Forge. Uh, but you can grab her notes if you want.
5: Yeah, I'll stuff them into the opening of this metallic jar.
0: Okay, you grab the schematics and the notes, and you stuff them into the opening of the jar, and, d- and you grab Forge as well, and as soon as your fingers make contact with the outside of Forge, this beautiful, glazed, kintsugi-strung vase, Like, this warm feeling spreads through the tips of your feathered fingers uh, into your body as you're reunited with your paragon god weapon, right? And you hear, like, Galtanger sort of singing in your soul, and the singing emanates out, and so it seems to ring against Forge's interior as well. And those cracks that form the different shards of Forge where it was splintered by Galtanger in the first place, um, those cracks light up, right, as you hold on to it, and, like, your own power surges through it. What do you do next?
4: Uh,
5: empowered by having my weapon with me again, I think I head back to in the direction of the storeroom to go find the knife.
0: Okay. Um, given your 28 and your 24 from earlier, I think when you return to that storeroom, it's inside a greater lab, right? So uh, the door to the lab itself remains open. Like, Lilith must have input some sort of code that didn't let it shut behind her. And you see her with her back turned to you uh, at the threshold of the storeroom. The door of the storeroom is open and she's looking at the ground. Her, like, head cocked to one side, that long, limpid, kind of pale, golden hair hanging sort of at the back of her waist. Uh, And she's sort of, like, leaning on one hip, right? Like, her hand cocked on it. Uh, And the other hand is sort of, like, I think, playing with one end of her hair as she's just sort of looking down. Down at this uh, undone watch, uh,
5: I think Dewey leans against the doorway uh, and sort of—he's he's been running this whole time, so he's still breathing kind of heavily—and he just waits for Lilith to notice, to like feel his eyes on the back uh, on the back of her head.
0: She stops playing with one end of her hair and then straightens her cocked head. And then, without turning around, you hear that perennially exhausted, low kind of hoarse, raspy voice ring out and say, Cardu, Cardu, (laughs) Cardu. Back in the lion's den. I have to give you credit for that. I didn't think you were brave enough to see me here again. Alone.
5: You didn't think a lot of me ever to begin with, huh?
0: And why should I?
5: Well, I'm standing here with with uh, Forge. And look at you. You've got my old watch.
0: At that, Lilith turns. She sort of turns very sharply on her heel. And you see that in one hand, she's actually got, like, the remnants of the watch. And she looks at you, and those limpid, kind of pale, washed out blue eyes fall on Forge back at your hip. And she, like, her face darkens immediately. Her brow, like, knits together for just a fraction of a second, and then she, like, relaxes her face once more. Well, look at you. Coming in here, zipping around the URL while you think my guard is down. So what? You have Forge back. I have you here too, don't I? And you here alone with the rest of your admittedly stronger friends. What are you but a failure?
5: Well, you know, maybe I was a failure once, uh, but I figured the watch out pretty good. You did put explosives in there, didn't you?
0: She lets out, like, a low, coarse growl, and she clenches the fist around the watch so tight that the glass face of it cracks, and you see some of her blood dribble out, and she, like, opens up her fist, and we just see, like, the tangled mess of leather and glass and metal just fall down from her palm and, like, scatter like sand onto the ground. What is this, your idea of taunting me? Well, not
5: you, but this whole place is uh, not a good place. And I kind of figured uh, the explosive might be a pretty good use. This might be a pretty good place for it.
0: What are you talking about? And the detritus at her feet blows up. Uh, So... (laughs) So I think from the outside of the URL, uh, which is this massive facility built into the ju- uh, the mountainous jungle of Nawa Island, which is no longer an island, it's just Nawa Mountain now, in the middle of the salt flats. We see from a distance, the facility just sort of like shudder once, and then boom! There's like a massive noise and like a mushroom explosion just emanates outward. Uh, and we see like roof goes flying, like metal scraps rain down from the sky, uh, like the eyes swirling the atmosphere off sort of. Turn and like fix onto this particular uh, area of chaos, Uh, and we push back in like through various bits of scrap metal littered all throughout this jungle back into this laboratory where the storeroom was. And Dewey, where do we find you in the middle of this wreckage?
5: I think both they were they were both standing way too close for comfort, and they both got blown into like the opposite wall. But Dewey fared a little bit better, and he gets up in the middle of this burning wreckage takes a moment to gather his bearings and also make sure Forge is on him and sees Lilith lying like face down I think in one of the corners and he grabs her limp wrist and then digs in deep with his connection with Dusty to use infoportation to get himself and Lilith out of the burning
7: building. (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, so Lilith has definitely been taken by surprise by this explosion, and because you had planned this in advance, I don't think you're really caught in the blast too much at all, because you knew it was coming. Uh, so you, we do find Lilith in the middle of this wreckage. She is face down, like her face is covered by her hair, and she's got like blasted scorch marks all around her, and the, the lab is gone. The lab is completely gone. The storeroom is gone. The ceiling is gone. You actually see bits of the jungle around you, as like this part has been just completely blown open. Like the far wall, that, like, was maybe, like, three feet of just pure steel blasted open. Uh, And we see, like, the outside crimson-strewn forest, like, off, like, 30 feet off to the right. Uh, But she's not dead, you're not dead, but she is, seems, like, heavily winded. Uh, and she's still kind of breathing kind of shallowly and she's letting out this
7: uh,
0: as you like grab onto her wrist and pull her up. And as you pull her up, her hair falls out of her face and she's like, I think you don't even need to make a strength check for this. You, you just get a sense that she's really light. She's really waifish and thin, right? And as you pull her up, she's like, she weighs like nothing. And you look up at her and she, her eyes are a little unfocused. and She just goes, what you... car do? And she opens her eyes and both of them are bright red. And then you use infoportation. Dewey, in the split second before you reappear in Endake, you and Lilith both materialize for less than a quarter of a second, okay? You materialize for less than a quarter of a second in what I can only describe as a waiting room. It looks like maybe there's like these like four white walls and there are these kinds. Interestingly enough, I think you glimpse things hung on the walls, but it's like for such short of an amount of time that I can't really properly describe them. Uh, but you do notice two people in this room. It's not a huge room. It's actually rather small. It looks like a private single person waiting room almost uh, there. You notice a chair, a table, and what a person is sitting at the chair, writing on a piece of paper at the table. And that person is dusty you notice dusty in their corporeal form and they're sort of writing on like a, a, a slip of paper or something and stand the other person is standing on the other side of the table and her arms are crossed over like a broad kind of a burly muscular chest she's got a shaved head and she's got these intricate tattoos all over her skin of these concentric circles uh, specifically at the back of her forehead like interlocked uh, and like fanning out over like every piece of skin that's exposed and she's wearing this kind of like non script just like plain black leather armor with her arms crossed over her chest she's looking down at dusty who seems to be like writing on some sort of slip of paper um and she's in the middle of saying out of a-. and that's it and if you want to get anything more than that i need you to make a perception check
5: Oh, rolling for my life and that's a 12
0: a 12! Okay. You can pick an aspect of this room for me to flesh out with a little bit more detail, but I will hit you with something hard, too. Or you can just let it go.
5: How much is, how much is Dusty written in this notebook? Can I make any of it out?
0: Okay. You want to know? Okay. I'll tell you. I'll, t- I'll tell you, Dewey. So in that quarter of a second, your eyes fall down onto that slip of paper and you focus on it. And you see that it's a form. It appears to be a request form of sorts. It is in common. Uh, and Dusty has filled out their name to be Dusty Quirk. Uh, they filled out their age to be less than one year. Uh, and they're like currently filling out like a, this one box, which is just like a, the largest box on the form, that says purpose for visit. And Dusty is in the middle. The sentence that they've written so far is, I would really much appreciate the opportunity to talk to Fate and M.A. And they're in the middle of writing a G. And then you're gone and I'll hit you with that consequence later. But before we go back to you, Dewey, Abiku and Oka, here, in the dream that is Tungal, in the Tungal that is the dream, the two of you see Dr. Hitzagaten Aluso. She kneels on the horizon so far, yet very, very close. Her back to the two of you. And both of you Feel tethers branching out from your souls, reaching across time, across space, across dream and wake toward him. These are the threads that bind you, the threads that Gentle and Voska can pull, the strings of fate that hold your friendships together. Abiku, Hitsagaten was your first friend. And you were, in many ways, the doctor's first friend as well, and your bond is strong. Oka, they are your soulmate, and you are theirs, and your bond is also strong. Even as Halo vanishes, what did the two of you do?
1: Now, Oka, we have to be. This is either a dream or a trap.
8: Biku, you promised me
1: that we would I... get them back. We will, but I don't know if this is real. Then
8: come with me, please. I need it to be real.
1: I I won't let you go alone, but we have to be careful. If this is not real, then we won't have a chance. We could make it real, right? I know what I promised Oka, but I don't know. But we can try, and Abiku will put her hand out
8: and Oga will take it, and then look.
0: So much hope brimming in their eyes. Sagu. And Hitsagatin turns from where they're kneeling on the horizon, they turn, and you see them. Their hair is golden, yes, their eyes are blue, but there's something on their face that is recognizable. You see, like, their face suddenly, like, eyebrows rise in surprise, and then, like, a look of immense, deep concern sort of flash across their expression. And though they are miles and also just feet, and hours and also just seconds away from you, you hear them say back to you Oka? Abiku? How? How are the two of you here?
8: And Oka breaks into a run towards them.
1: Uh, Oka uh uh Biku
0: will go after Oka, I guess. The two of you run toward Itagetenoluso. And Abiku, you feel the ghost of a presence. Whisper against the lobe of your left ear like wind gusting across an open field. Okay? It swells in the pit of your heart, a feeling of what is it? Devotion? Conviction a full wrenching bursting trust And then you hear the voice Abiku of the goddess of wind and faith, lover of Gall Tanger, the forgotten the Sulky Whisper in the confines of your mind My Paragon oh my God, from, from another time. time Don't And on that word don't That ghost of a presence whips into a massive breeze, a gust of wind that buffets you backward, away from Dr. Eluso, away from Oka, out of Tungal, back into the Iron Citadel. But this time, Abiku, you're no longer in the atrium with the Tarasque and the vaulted ceilings and the tables full of fossils and objects and trinkets. You are in the Vault of Banur, the graveyard of your forebears. But it is not the blasted battleground that you remember, or even the storage room of a tyrant's trophies. Instead, this version of the vault is full of them, full of your ancestors. And on that, we cut back to Oka. Oka. Abiku vanishes. Just like Halo did. And it's just you and Sagu. And that unknowable stretch of time and distance between the two of you, folding smaller, 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 until you're there! You're right there! They're within arm's reach. What do you do? I kiss them, obviously. You fall down and you kiss. Hiss, Doctor Aluso, and there's like a hmm, as you know you collide into them, and I think the two of you like fall, even like if it's okay with you, fall flat onto this like blasted grassy field, uh, and they're like underneath you, and you feel them. They feel so real. This is a dream or a trap, but they feel so real. Their body is so solid and soft, and they're there. They smell like them. They smell like green tea and and wood smoke. And I think there's a moment where there's like a pause, and then. They relax and they kiss you back. And they, like, wrap their arms around you and they, like, hold you tight in, like, a a deep, like, desperate hug. And when I think the two of you finally pull away and you look down at Dr. Eluso, they sort of move their head slightly off to the side and look up at you with this, like, unspeakable splendor and wonder, like you're this marvelous, beautiful thing that they don't quite know how to take in. And then she says, oh, Hoka, can you really not tell us apart? And Oblivion grabs the front of your shirt and yanks down. And on that, we cut back to the stage of the concert. Bosca, You're on the stage. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Flanked by entropic beasts, Gentle is flying through the air alongside this huge draconic spirit uh, Dewey has left as all of you know. He will be doing, and Joran is off to the side doing their own thing as well. And it's in the middle of this that two things happen at once. To your left, poof. Space and time expand. And Dewey is there, and he is holding onto Lilith's wrist. And the two of them just stumble and tumble onto the stage, sort of rolling over and over and over each other a little bit, uh, from, like, the force of being ejected back into the material plane here. And, like... Dewey, I think you're able to like stand your ground though at the end of it, and like you're on your feet holding onto Lilith, almost like a a trophy or a prisoner. And she's like, like getting, gathering her wits again and trying to wrench her wrist out of your hand. And Voska, before you can fully react to this, on your right, Oka tumbles into existence, uh, wrapped in the arms of one Dr. Aluso. Uh, But as these two forms finally come to a halt, I think kind of uh, at the very front of the stage, uh, it's Dr. Eluso, or rather Oblivion, who's on top of Oka now. And they look up in like a single motion, right? And in that single motion, all of you who are here, geron Gentle, Vasanti, Dewey, Vasca, even Lilith, Just almost like you're compelled by something greater than yourself. All of your heads turn, your eyes swivel, and you lock onto Oblivion's face as they pull their chin up. And with this kind of, like, wild, vicious, steadfast smile, they look around, up at this stage, taking in the sights, the sounds, the smells, all of this for them. And they say to all of you at once, huh. Interesting little cage you've tried to build for me. But I'm not trapped here with you. Paragons and keepers, you're trapped here with me. This episode of The Second Stranger was edited by Connie Chong. Transplaner RPG is proudly sponsored by at on Twitter and explaintrade.com, a negotiation skills training consultancy, because you can't ask to roll persuasion in real life. Check out explaintrade.com. Please consider giving us a 5-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This helps so much with getting new listeners to find us. New podcast episodes drop every Tuesday. If you can't wait that long, tune into our live stream Saturdays at 7pm US Central Time on Twitch at TransPlanarRPG. Also, toss us a follow on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at TransPlanarRPG. We also have a Patreon. Patrons get early access to episodes, character sheets, high-res art, and much, much more. And finally, a very special thank you to our patreon paragons alex brooke bright brooke in seattle charles chiacres cora eckert hat conding lex slater lyle and peanut matt sweeney purple
7: mouse riley spencer critchfield scruffysis and target